Independent. Expressive of a spirit of independence, self-confident, unconstrained. Hello, my name is Joe Armstrong. Welcome to Independence Day. This is the show that examines the changing face of the music business and the people who are doing the changing. Independence Day brings you independent artists, producers and music industry visionaries with in-depth interviews, live performances, and inside information, all without hype and direct from the artists who practice their craft. Tonight on Independence Day, Adam Levy. Few musicians get to experience the kind of career ride Adam Levy has had. It all started simply enough. Levy was a young, talented jazz guitarist who grew up in Los Angeles and had lived on both coasts, playing with numerous artists and earning some accolades for his smoky blues licks on Tracy Chapman's hit, Give Me One Reason. After a few more moves, Levy found himself in San Francisco writing for Guitar Player magazine, not a bad regular gig in a field where regular gigs come dear. A strange confluence of events then set him on a path that would sound like a yarn had it not come to pass. It was sparked by an email from a little-known performer he'd played with in New York. Along with a rare and uncannily good deal on an apartment in Manhattan and a cross-country tag-along ride. That email was from Nora Jones, with whom Levy had been playing gigs before he left for the West Coast. She was headed into the studio to record her debut album for the Blue Note label, and she asked him to come to New York and play some guitar. When it was released, Come Away With Me captured the zeitgeist of America in the aftermath of the September 11th terror attacks, sold millions of copies, and won Jones eight Grammys in 2003. And it also launched Jones, Levy, and the other musicians in her band into the rarefied air unique to multi-platinum artists. Levy played with Jones' handsome band for six years and two more albums before setting off on his own. Levy has kept busy since, relocating back to his native California, releasing several albums, and chairing the guitar department at Los Angeles College of Music. Levy's deft, tasteful, slow-hand guitar style has also been heard on recordings by Ani DeFranco, Amos Lee, and numerous others, and his newest project is a quartet of top-notch musicians including Rich Hinman, Jay Belarus, and Jennifer Condos that can be found playing entertaining and unpretentious gigs around Los Angeles. Welcome to Independence Day, Adam Levy. Hey, Adam. Hey, Joe. How are you? I'm very, very well. I'm so happy to get you on the show, bordering on like proud to get you on the show because you're, aside from like a fantastic musician, you're a kind human being. And I think that that's something that, uh, I don't know, I don't want to go all negative on it, but like something I think the world needs is kind people. And especially when you meet people who are so as talented as you are, who are as kind as you are. Sometimes those don't seem to kind of mix. So thank you for both those things. Sure. Thank you for being who you are and thank you for coming on the show. And you've got a wingman here. Tell me who your wingman is. The uh, secret weapon, maybe secret ingredient is better than secret weapon. Uh, this is my friend Rich Hinman. Um, we have a band together where he plays pedal steel and guitar, and I brought him along today to play uh, some mandolin. Yeah, yeah. Say hello, Rich. Hey, how you doing? I'm very, very well. Thanks for sticking around for part of this interview. It's great oh. to meet you. Also, extremely talented guy. Now, you guys, uh, did you meet, you're a New York guy, Rich? Like, we're... I grew up in New York, yeah. Okay. So, Adam, I guess I'm trying to connect the dots here, how you knew Rich. Because you are from, Adam, you're from California originally. That's right, yeah. Right. But then you kind of made your first waves in New York to, like, plot your geographical course. <laughs> Do one of those, like, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark things where the little red line goes. Like, where did you, where did you start yeah, and where did you go? See, maybe you can get that graphic on the way. <laughs> yeah, I'll see what I can do. Um Oh, I was, yeah, I was born, yeah, in Los Angeles and lived here until my early 20s. And then I moved to San Francisco. Okay. 89, I guess, is when that was. And before really, or after the earthquake? Just before, okay. like weeks before. 
that happened. Yeah, the big San Francisco earthquake of 89 happened. I was just settling into my apartment and uh, I was working a job at the Bay Guardian, which is how I know Daryl Satsman, but that's another story for another time. Shout out to Daryl in KCRW. <laughs> and um, all this, there was a, it was a newspaper building and there was upstairs from us, there was a dance class. So when the earthquake started, we thought the hoofers upstairs were just really going bonkers. Yeah. But then we realized it was something a little more than yeah, that. A so, more insidious. What's that? I just said a little more insidious. A little more insidious. Uh, I stayed in San Francisco till about 95 or 6, and then I moved to New York. Okay. But I, w- I got cold feet. I moved back to San Francisco. Then I, got, I moved back to New York. I gave it a second chance. I moved back to San Francisco again. And You're around- like Steve Earle with marriages. <laughs> Shout out to Steve Earl. And I love Steve Earl. I don't want to bust his balls. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Steve. I love that guy. I do too. That's pretty funny. Um, and finally, in 1999, I moved, or 2000, somewhere in there, I moved back to New York again and it stuck. Okay. And I stayed in New York. Oh, it's so complicated. This is The graphics department is going to be working overtime. I briefly moved to New Orleans in 2000. Um, Four, I okay. guess, before the flood. I, um, and then I was living in L.A. For a, for a short time in there, but basically in New York. I never let go of my apartment in New York. Right. Everyone at home is like snoozing by now, like, oh. But, uh, <laughs> well, there's a reason for the New York connection, which is like a really, really big, like giant gold star in your career, which was that you were the guy working with Nora Jones right. when Come Away With Me, the multiple Grammy winning album, multi-platinum album came out. So we'll touch upon that a little bit later, but I I guess I wanted to like make that connection because I knew you when I first met you not too terribly long ago, I didn't know that you were from California. Like I always kind of knew you as a New York guy. So that's why I wanted to draw the connection with Rich. So it all kind of at least made somewhat sense. I'm sorry, go ahead. ahead. No, I was gonna say, yeah, we never quite got to the how we met. met, This is pretty, pretty dorky, I would say, but this is, uh, we met, um, I was a student at a guitar camp in in Connecticut uh, called the National Guitar Workshop, RIP, no longer exists. It existed for a long time. Um, And Adam taught there for a number of years, and I was a student when I was, I guess I met you when I was like 15. Okay. So it would be around 20 So he was like the Jedi Master, and you were the the Padawan to get a Star Wars reference in here as as early as we can. (laughs) Sure, yeah, right in the front end of the interview. That's good. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Just get it out of the way. That's the trick. Yeah, so we stayed in touch, and then when he moved to New York, I think in 2001, when he was playing with Nora, that's actually when, like, pretty much exactly when I moved. I grew up outside of New York City, but um, that's when I, like, moved to New York City as kind of an adult, yeah. like as 22 or however however old I was. And you're relatively new to L.A.? You've I'm just... very new to L.A., uh, less than a year. Okay, well, welcome. Thank you. Glad to have you. Thank How you. do you like it so far? It's been great. Yeah. It's been really great. I, You know, I, I'm a Chicagoan originally, so mm-hmm. I'm well-versed in like eastern cold cities. Lived in New York for a while as well. Love New York. Um, I, I could have made it happen, but I was living with a girlfriend in a tiny, tiny, tiny little place mm. on 9th and 49th. Yep. And when the relationship imploded, it was like I, I kept thinking, like, am I going to move in with a roommate in a place this size? Like, it's one thing when you're with your girlfriend in a tiny right. little place, but like, I, I didn't want to do that. So I went back to Chicago. I think that was the whole thing in that city. It was just, it became, and that's been everyone's difficulty recently, is that it's become very difficult. It's been, for my wife and I, it was essentially like easy. We were like, 
we, it was easier for us to move across the country than it was for us to like find another apartment. Oh another apartment when our apartment yeah. became more expensive and seemed like not worth it Anyone anymore. Anyone who's ever looked for an apartment in New York knows exactly what we're talking it's about. Very painful. Yeah. One particular time, we were looking for a place, and we were it was the heat of summer, August, sultry, steamy, soupy New York. No car, of course. We're in and out of subways all the way to two hundredth something Street. Lower East Side, Upper East Side, Upper West Side, you know, Greenwich Village, everywhere. Looked at 20-some places in two weeks, and we were at wit's end. Like, what What are we going to do? I can't right. find anything. So we, we just happened. We're like, the last day, we're like dragging ass coming back in, like from all this running around. And we bumped into the property manager from the building she had been living in. She's like, oh, there's a place opening up right above where you are now. So after all that, it's like that Paul Coelho story. Right. <laughs> the alchemist, like you go all the way around New York, and then we wound up living about eight feet from... Yeah. Where we the last apartment I lived in New York was a uh, very similar story to that. I, I was on the road um, with Nora and had to. I, I needed to move because I was I was living in this apartment, this tiny, tiny little apartment in New York City, and I was going to move in with my girlfriend. Neither of us were in town, but we had already given our notice. So right. this like the clock is ticking when we have to be out of each of us our separate apartments. We're moving it together, and. After a whole bunch of uh, New York apartment insanity, I finally occurred to me, why don't I just ask my building manager, yeah. the building, who I have a good relationship with, who I don't have to go through all the like credit report and all that stuff with, just like, he knows me. Hey, is there a bigger apartment opening up in yeah. our building? And he said, oh, you know, actually there is. So everything was done... Uh, it was a done deal, and we and we moved in. But you know, sometimes you forget that right. it's actually the personal connections that right. make stuff happen in New York or anywhere really. and everywhere. Honestly, and that's the thing. I mean, it's it's like well, that's why I'm glad that Rich is sticking around a little bit to talk about this because it's it's the personal relationships. You know, everybody like the one piece of advice I say this on the show all the time that I wish my music teachers would have given me is that it's really they tell you everywhere it's who you know. And right. that's what's going to get you gigs. That's what's going to get you jobs. That's going to get you tours. That's what's going to get you the things in life. But when you're a kid growing up in Batavia, Illinois, or Encino, California, or wherever you're growing up, you don't know anybody. So you think, well, I'm sunk because I don't. If, if it's who you know, and I don't know anybody, how am I ever going to get anywhere? So then, okay, so you work and you practice, and all this diligence goes into it. But what I wish they would have told me is that well, everyone else is kind of rising with you. Right. It's a sideways thing. Right. When people say it's who you know, I think kids register that as, oh, I better meet some famous people. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And it doesn't work that way. It's it's these relationships that you build as you're going through classes and showing up on time and not being drunk or high or whatever right. it is that you've and, got and going on. And playing music is a, is a communal art, yeah. right? It's not like a... It's, you know, it can be a, a solo venture, but like m- more often than not, you're playing music with other people, so that relationship is as much a personal relationship yeah. as it is in music. It's very personal. And yeah. like, it's, you want to, I just mostly want to play with my friends. Yeah. That's like mostly if someone is like, can you recommend a band for this gig? I would recommend my friends of course. who are great players, right. but it's like the, the thing is that I want to hang out with them and I want to, and making music with them will be deeper and better because right. we have a relationship. And if you're mm-hmm. going to be riding around in a van or a plane or a sure. bus or whatever, sitting around in tired situations in far off time zones, you want to be with people who are not going to be jerks about that fact. For sure. Right. It's a tough road to hoe being a musician. Yeah. 
But that, yeah, that long, that friend thing, like, it's funny when people see our band, Rich and I have a band that plays pretty regularly in Los Angeles. Is there a name for this band, by the way? Because I've heard it billed as in, like, you versus him. Yeah, that's, what, we, that's, that's what, what we call it, Rich okay. Hinman versus Adam Levy. Okay. Um, people say, well, how long have you been together? And as a band, less than a year, but Rich and I have known each other for 20 years. Right. And the bass player, uh, Jennifer Condos, and the drummer, Jay Bellaros, they've known each other for 20 years and been a couple for probably 15 years. Yeah. 14 Astounding. years. They told me the other day. Yeah. Astounding yeah. musicians so, we're talking yeah. about, right. Bellaros and Condos. But no amount of rehearsal with strangers is going to get you those kind of lifelong relationships. Right. You know, so. Yeah. So it makes, it's like a. You know, it's it should feel as close to family as you as you can make it yeah. feel, and it won't always feel like that. You know, sometimes music can be work, and you're out there yeah. working, and it's people you don't know, and you're just trying to make it make it work, and that's also cool. Yeah, but, I think people want a simple answer for things. Is it what's the one like golden arrow or the one silver bullet that's going to solve all your problems in terms of your music career or your relationships? But the like so many things in our modern life, especially when you become adults, it's the answer is all of these things. Mm. All of these things together. I mean, yeah, there might be one golden bolt that's going to get you one gig, but then that's going to open the door to something else. But it's not going to be one thing that's going to solve all your problems. Hmm. In any case, I'm talking with Adam Levy. He's a Los Angeles-based musician, astounding musician, good human being. He's got uh, Rich Hinman tagging along. They're going to play some live songs in just a second. But first, we're going to play a song from Adam's most recent record, which is called... What's the right the record is called? I'm sorry, Town and Country? Town and Country. Town and Country. And the song is Memphis, Tennessee. Everyone will be very familiar with this song. Correct, yes. Adam? Yeah. All right, fantastic. Let's play the song. We come back. Why don't you tell me just a little bit about making this record? Okay, okay. so Adam Levy on Independence Day.
Adam Levy, Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah. Great song. Thanks. Yeah, that's uh, it's Chuck Berry's tune. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I saw Chuck at Western Illinois University. No. In the 80s. Okay. We drove a long way. That's all like all the way across Illinois, like kind of in the cornfields and the sticks. And it's amazing to think that these guys who invented this genre are still around. Oh, yeah. You know, just, just very recently, I got to meet Peter Asher and huh. Albert Lee. Uh, you know, Asher, aside from being a musician, a businessman, the guy who put James Taylor on the map, like mm. we, we live in a time the Stones, all the Stones, well, with the exception of Brian Jones, uh, are still around. Yeah. I just, I, um, I got to meet and record with, uh, Alan Toussaint, wow. uh, this past week and he's, I'm not sure of his age, but he's got to be close to 80 Yeah, and he is to me. Yeah. I mean, he's in the Mount Rushmore of, at least of my musical universe. Yeah. And he's still at, he sounds better than ever. He plays piano great. He's singing great. And yeah, he's an entrepreneur. He, he He's great. If anybody doesn't know who Alan Toussaint is, you can uh, look him up. Incredible uh, figure from New Orleans. I mean, what an incredible opportunity. I mean, you've, you've had like a lifetime of incredible opportunities. And, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, growing up in California, like what was it that took you to New York? Was it music to, to, to go do music or were you out of college by that point? Did you go for college? Like why New York? Just music. Yeah. Uh, before I lived in New York, I was living in San Francisco in the, you know, from 89 into the early nineties. And it seemed like all of the music that I was excited about when I would okay. look at the back of the record, it was somehow connected to New York. It was recorded in New York or, you know. There's all, you know, what can I say? Bill Frizzell records, John Zorn records. Um, I was excited about New York music, jazz music, and Paul Motion, the great uh, drummer. I thought if I was going to play that kind of music, maybe I should go yeah. there. It's something that you're coming from a place like Los Angeles, where you, the full width and breadth of the music industry is at your fingertips. Mm. But I think that sometimes you, you got to kind of get out of the skin that you've been in, yeah. especially at that age, like in your early 20s yeah. or so. Like you've going to college, I feel, is like a social thing as much as it is an educational thing because sure. you have to get away from the stuff you've been around your whole life. It's crucial. Yeah. I think it, it, it imprints you in a way. And you have to open your heart to that change. Like New York was terrifying when I moved there. <laughs> yeah. You know, even coming from a place like Chicago, um, New York just has this like oscillation. The whole place vibrates mm. with this like subharmonic frequency that you can feel yep. everywhere you go, 24 hours a day. That much human energy, I think, is part of that in one place. And it was, it was mortifying. I mean, it wasn't, I wasn't like scared of the city, right. but I was kind of scared of that energy mm. because if you fight it, I think it will kind of chew you up. Right. But if you can be courageous enough to open your heart to that crazy energy, it will pick you up like a stream and carry you along. At least that's what I found. I was just going to say, as you're, as you're describing it, it kind of sounds like surfing. Like, yeah. if you think about what the energy of the ocean is, it could be terrifying. But if you learn how to, to ride those waves and not try and fight them, yeah. not that I know anything about surfing despite my uh, Angelino roots, yeah. but uh, that's how it seems to me. It's almost a Taoist kind of thing. Mm. You know, whereas the... In a big storm, the bridge or the building breaks, whereas the tree survives because right. it can bend. Right. And that's kind of like maybe, I don't know, maybe that's like a metaphor for, for you and your life. Because it seems like you, you, you're so musical and you're, you're kind of against type for a guitar player, especially uh -huh. a guitar player who solos as well as you do. There's a very cocksure kind of um, 
way of being for soloists. Right. But you're such a gentle soul. You know, was that was? Do you think that's something that's worked for you against you, or did it not even matter in your musical career? Um, I would say on the whole, it has worked for me. There's a couple of times I can think of specific gigs where people hired me. I think they have an expectation of a guitar player as having that kind of personality, like you're right. talking about. And yeah, there's been a few situations where. Um, either I've been asked to step out more when I'm soloing, not, not not so much to play differently, but just in my body language. Like, yeah. like okay, look, people are coming to the show. They want to see a guitar solo. And I always felt like maybe because I, I was a fan of, of records and studio musicians when I was a kid, um, I was always thinking of these great studio musicians playing these great guitar parts, probably like sitting down probably yeah. with a shirt and tie on at least in the 50s and 60s and so the whole like you know putting your foot up on the monitor and like you know that that whole thing never really occurred to me as being important so even right. though i was trying to play with that energy sometimes um i have had a couple of band leaders ask me to make more of a show of things and if nothing else it maybe it just makes them feel like like yeah. you know it's happening it's something coming from Chicago and my roots where I didn't fully appreciate the performance aspect of performing mm. until I came to Los Angeles. It's not like you have to go L.A. and get some glittered boots and some high steppers and, <laughs> no. and you know, be look dressed like David Lee Roth, which is fine. Um, but you are performing. Yeah. You know, it's something that I had to learn. Like, I have, I have certain rules now. Like, I never wear shorts on stage, even if it's a million degrees. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like a respect for your audience. Sure. And that's part of being a musician, you know, unless you're exclusively a studio cat. I was watching The Wrecking Crew the other night, talking to those guys mm. and, you know, girls. We're not two, talking, you know, listening to them talk right. about their right. own experience. Sorry. And, you know, in every band, there's soft-spoken people. There's out, outspoken people. The uh, new Tom Petty uh, biography that's coming out. They finally got a lot of stuff out of Stan Lynch, which was the drummer who was kicked out of the band. Oh, yeah. Because he was the extrovert out of all those guys, and he was right. kind of a really big personality, which eventually kind of graded on the rest of them. Right. As far as, I, you know, I didn't, I, um, I did watch one of the discs of the Tom Petty documentary. It's pretty epic. I, I didn't watch the whole thing, but Peter Bogdanovich, I think, did that, didn't he? Is that right? I think he did. So it struck me from, yeah, that maybe Stan Lynch had somehow rubbed people the wrong way with his personality more than with his drumming. Right. And so, I mean, to answer again, you, you know, what, what you asked me a moment ago, I think on the whole, being a little more reserved has served me. But I'm, I'm sure there's gigs that I don't even get considered for because, you know, people think of, um, yeah, that kind of cocksure, uh, over-the-top guitar personality. Maybe somebody wants that, and maybe yeah. some singers want that as a foil because there's been so many bands where that tension between the lead singer and the lead guitar player becomes like something that's exciting for, yeah. you know, Oasis is an example of that. Right. You know, uh, Eddie and uh, Eddie Van Halen and Diamond Dave. You know, you could we could spend the whole podcast talking about singers versus guitar players, right. but for I. On the other hand, I think, or at least I've been told by certain artists and producers that maybe um, I they're they're comfortable, and they they feel comfortable, so they can do what they're doing without worrying. Geez, what's that? What's that guy going to do? I got to watch over my shoulder yeah. at every moment. It's like no, I I can focus on what I'm doing and trust that um, 
that that guy's going to do what he needs to do to serve the music. Yeah. Yeah. And it becomes a, in the best situations, it becomes a symbiotic relationship where, because people, you know, there's like the George Harrison solo concept where it's just really the melody, which is just, it's long before George Harrison, but that's kind of how I kind of learned it as like, mm-hmm. well, if you're going to play a solo, where are you going to start? We'll start with the melody, mm-hmm. which is really what the singer was just doing, right. be it a male or female singer. But the ear needs a little break from the singing. Yeah. So even if you're playing a figure, a written out figure or a pre-planned figure, whether it's an actual improvised solo or a solo that's kind of pre-planned or kind of a mixture of the two, it's balancing out that music. Sure. And then you throw the attitudes on top of it and it becomes, you know, I think maybe bands may even play up the versus aspect right. of that a little bit yep. when it's like, they're just all doing what they do. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So Adam, why don't you play a song? You've got a beautiful guitar here, a Slothead Martin. You've got Rich Hinman who's going to play a beautiful, beautiful old mandolin, which I think is older than you and I put together. <laughs> it could well be. Uh, and uh, what's this first song going to be? Uh, this is called The Heart Collector. Tell me a little bit about it. Uh, this is a song, for, I made a record a few years ago that's called The Heart Collector. Um, the title was inspired by, uh, there's, a, there's a songwriter from L.A., a woman named Sam Phillips. Mm. And, uh, she had T-Bone a, Burnett's ex-wife. That's, that's right, Samson. yeah. And she had a song a few records ago called, uh, I think the, the song was called The Edge of the World, I think. Okay. Kind of a noir uh, so anyway, there's there's a, a one line in the song uh, that says, uh, the heart collector had his hands on me. Mm-hmm. And that's it. It comes and goes. It, and I, every time I listen to that song, I thought, wait a minute, who who is this character? Yeah. Is, is it the Grim Reaper? Is he just sort of a ladies' man? Like, what what exactly is the heart collector? And I liked also the idea that, like, people know the phrase art collector. So right. sort of playful in that way. So I wrote a song basically to, to fill out the backstory of this guy who plays a cameo role in one Sam Phillips And what song. a great person to get inspiration from. Sam's great. So great. The I Martinis and Bikinis record. That's a great record. Phenomenal. I love that record. A short aside, we'll mm-hmm. get to the song. I promise sure. I'll keep this as short as possible. Sure. I was working a bartending job in Chicago for a while one summer while I was in college. And you know how the cleaning guys come in like in the early part of the, like the almost always uh, Latino guys yep. come in and they like, there's a whole crew of them. And they clean the whole place right? because they just leave all that junk at the end of the night and they right. either come in at like four in the morning or they come in at like noon, right. clean the place and then get out of there. Well, these guys had come in at noon or so and we were going to work that night. That might be the bar opened at two or four. Right. So they're cleaning, and one of those guys had a Sam Phillips martinis and bikinis T-shirt. No, and I'm like, what in the hell? <laughs> what kind of universe do I live in that this guy, who has no earthly clue, right, guaranteed who Sam Phillips was? And I, and I you know, I've kind of broken Spanish from right. high school. I'm like, I was like, hey, where'd you get that shirt? Right. Oh, you know, no, you know, no English. Right. So that my friend knew Spanish, and I was like, I told him about it. like that is the I can't believe this. I've never even seen a Sam Phillips T-shirt for right. martinis and bikinis. Didn't know they even existed. Right. My buddy somehow talked this guy into swapping shirts with him. <laughs> so my buddy That's gave great. him his shirt. He got the Sam Phillips shirt, and he gave the Sam Phillips. Then my buddy gave the Sam Phillips shirt to me. So I still have that shirt. Incredible. That's a great Such story. A random thing. Anyway, not related to anything. Mm. Adam Levy is my guest. So proud to have you, man. Uh, this is a great song from its title track from his record, The Heart Collector. Adam Levy on Independence Day. Here it comes, 
the heart collective Looking for specimens of every kind It's never seen one like yours before Better look over your shoulder Better lock your door There was a girl so fair and ginger She used to work a picture show Until the night she stayed too late there And all the regulars went home She was getting high in the projection room Watching Betty Grable down Argentina Candy by the handful where the eyes have closed Milk does hit the floor when he lowered the boom Here come the heart collected Looking for specimens of every kind Never seen one like yours before You better look over your shoulder Better lock your door Midnight stroll that started sweetly Corolla and her friends made for The night was full, the stars were many Above the caves at Lake Lenore So sure of the way she wandered off alone Karen never liked to follow trails or back Look into the constellations leading lights Then all the stars went out and she was good as gone Here come the heart lit Looking for specimens of every kind She's never seen one like yours before You better look over your shoulder, better lock your door Here come the heart lit Looking for specimens of every kind string him up if they could find him But such a man is hard to trace Like a cloak he draws the darkness round him No living soul has seen his face If I knew his whereabouts I'd never say The better part of valor is discretion Another cardiophile trying to outdo his own collection. Here comes the heart collector, 
Looking for specimens of every kind He's never seen one like yours before You better look over your shoulder Better lock your door Here comes the heart collector Looking for specimens of every kind He's never seen one like yours before You better look over your shoulder Better lock your door. That is Adam Levy. Uh, you know him from the Nora Jones Band, also played with Tracy Chapman, lots of other really fantastic folks. But that's a song that he wrote, a song from his record, The Heart Collector. And uh, you can visit him at adamlevy.com. You can also find him on Instagram. String Juggler is kind of like this alternate ego, it seems like, that yeah. you've got. Yeah. Uh, so Instagram.com slash string underscore juggler underscore. Yeah. A little clumsy, but you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> you get it? There's a story. <laughs> All right. I had String Juggler just straight, you know, which is a lot easier to explain to people. Right. I play the guitar. That's kind of string juggling. And... Uh, about a year ago, I decided I wanted to go completely off social media. I just got burned out on it. And little by little, I was reeled back in. I must have had something I was trying to promote or something. And, you know. You blew it, didn't you? I kind of blew it. <laughs> and I went back and I had let String Juggler go. And uh -oh. somebody sniped it from me. So I had to then, I looked for some other options. So now it's string underscore juggler Under, underscore. Vestigial totally. underscore at the end. Yeah. Vestigial <laughs> underscore. That's funny. And you've also got uh, soundcloud.com slash string juggler. And there's some great stuff on there, oh, by the thanks. way. Thanks. Uh, the thing you did with Matt Chamberlain, that's the Town & Country Project. Yep. I love him. Yeah. How did you... This is another aside. I want to talk about Nora Jones in just okay. a second. But tell me how you got hooked up with Matt Chamberlain. He's the one of the only drummers I can pick out mm. just hearing... Yep. You know, like I heard the Macy Gray song. I was like, that's Chamberlain. Yep. And I heard a Saturday Night Live band one time years and years ago before they had the internet, before, you know, I was like, that's, yeah. I just heard it. I was like, that's got to be Chamberlain. Yep. And sure enough, it was. Yeah. Anyway, how did you meet Matt? Uh, how did I meet Matt Chamberlain? Um, that's a good question. Well, okay, I forgot until it just, it popped into my head. About 10 years ago when I was living in New York, um, a bass player named Victor Krause had just made a record um, his sister is Allison Krause. And he's also, he plays with uh, Lyle Lovett's band. That's too. right. So uh, Victor had made a, a record of his own with um, with Matt Chamberlain and Bill Frizzell on it. And he was doing some shows in New York where I was living at the time. And somehow Victor got my number. I'm not sure how, to be honest, but Victor got my number and he came to New York and he said, you know, do you want to play a couple shows with me? So the band at that time was uh, Victor on upright bass, Matt on drums, Tim Young on guitar, who now lives in LA, but who was in Seattle at the time, and me. And somehow I just stayed in touch with Matt, even, you know, it's like 10 years ago. And when yeah. I moved back to LA three years ago or something. Yeah, he you was, just moved back down here not yeah. too terribly long ago. So he's one of the people that I wanted to make some music with. And uh, when, I, when I decided to make this Town & Country record, uh, he was the first guy I thought of. Yeah, such a great player. 
Love the Matt Chamberlain. I'm glad. I mean, when I, I before I met you, I had heard the Town and Country thing. I think I found it on SoundCloud mm. and saw that you were doing a project with Matt Chamberlain. It was one of those things. It was like in my world, it was like hearing, like having a peanut butter that I always loved. Finally, make a sandwich with a jelly that I always love <laughs> on great <laughs> bread because he's got such a feel. Oh, it's incredible. His, the, Excuse me, the placement of his snare and the little hi-hat things he do, which are kind of left over from the 90s, but he still makes them work yep. in this modern age. Yeah, and we, you know, we recorded at a studio that is now called Fairfax Recording, but it's the former home of Sound City. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. Over in the valley, and I guess technically it's in Panorama City. Yeah. And Matt has made, you know, no joke, probably well over 100 records there. So he knows that yeah. room really well. And he knew that his drums and his the way he plays would just sound like magic in that room. Yeah. So I, I chose that studio largely because Matt said, you know, given all things being equal, I'd love to make this record in that room. Yeah, yeah. well, good choice, because it sounds great. Uh, the playing's great. Uh, very representative of what you do. Like it, it's such an interesting thing, what you do, because it's so, you've got a slow hand kind of style mm. in a way. Mm. Um, this is very, very inside baseball guitar player geek <laughs> stuff, but it's, it's your, you do this descending arpeggio thing every now and again. It's really fast. Huh. Huh. It's like a thing that, like to me, I associate that with your playing specifically. Oh. So when I see you play, it's like, ah, oh, okay, he's doing a good solo. He, knows, <laughs> he's, he does that one thing a couple times a night. Anyway, I digress from music geekery for a moment. Let's get talk to something else. Okay. Let's talk about that gold star I talked about before. Sure. Uh, Nora Jones. Yeah. Everyone knows who Nora Jones is. Household name. Album blew up beyond, I think, anybody's belief, probably including hers. Yes, for sure. Talk to me. A, like, how did you get into that situation? And then, and then what I really want to hear, like, first tell me that, and then kind of maybe tell me, like, because you were with her when that blew up, and so sure. few people in the world are able to be part of any situation in any type of work or endeavor that goes from what you would consider nominal success to ridiculously ludicrous success. Like, mm. it seems like overnight. And mm -hmm. you were, had to, were in not just a ringside seat, you were in the shuttle. Yeah. So tell me how you met her, like what you were doing like before everything exploded. Right. So um you know, as I said, in the in the early nineties I was living in San Francisco and listening to all this New York music, which was mostly instrumental music, sort of jazz and avant, whatever. I finally moved to New York around ninety six and then you know, was playing mostly jazz gigs. Were here. you supporting yourself as a musician at this point? I was, yeah. Congratulations in, in retrospect. That's great. <laughs> yeah, I look back. I don't know how I did it, but I, I did it. And uh, right around 99, somewhere between 99 and 2000, I was in a bar in New York City called the 55 Bar which uh, people who like jazz and live in New York would know that bar. Um, lots of great music happens there. I went there to see my friend Kenny Wallison. He's a drummer. And he has a band called The Wallisons, or at least he did at that time. So I went to see his band, The Wallisons. And I got there a little early. And as I'm waiting and the band is setting up, uh, this young lady comes in through the front door. And she's also a friend of Kenny Wallison's, and there's an empty seat next to me at the bar. And so Kenny graciously introduces us. He says, oh, Adam, I want you to meet. This is my friend Nora Jones. She just moved here from Texas today. Uh, she's a great piano player, great singer. She's, I remember Kenny said she's double kick, double ass, which he, <laughs> he meant. I she's love a, that phrase. Yeah. Kick-ass pianist, kick-ass yeah, singer. Yeah, yeah. 
And, uh, you know, while the band was setting up, she and I talked for a little bit and, you know, we talked about what kind of records we were into and what kind of music. And we both seemed to like this overlap between, you know, blues and jazz and country, you know, really the, the great American musical art forms. And I said, look, you know, here's my number. I wrote her down on a scrap of paper. I said, if you wind up, I didn't even know if she was going to stay in New York. It was literally her first day. And, and not everyone wow. stays when they come to New York. And she said, yeah, okay. So I gave, gave her my number. I said, look, if you wind up playing some gigs, I'd, I'd love to get together and play with you. And, and that's really how that whole thing started. Lord almighty. So then from there, how long was it before she called you? It's about three weeks. Uh, she got this funny little gig singing jazz standards at like a an art opening in some funny little gallery. So it was just us. Uh, she just sang, and I played guitar. So she didn't even play keyboards? Not on that first gig, no. Interesting. So then at this point, you know, did it morph into like a regular thing, pretty like organically, like it does with so many bands? So now you're just kind of playing around town as a duo? Um, no, what happened next is she uh, got a job waiting tables at this coffee shop uh, that was part of a hotel, and um, she asked them if she could do some gigs there, like Sunday brunch gigs in the in the coffee shop part of the hotel. And um, when she started gigging regularly, uh, there was enough money on the gig to actually hire. A ch- uh, I don't think there was a drummer on at that point, so she she could hire me on guitar and an upright bassist. And um, so she was doing that gig every Sunday um, for brunch. And that's when it became a little bit more of a regular thing. But still at that point, she wasn't, as far as I know, wasn't writing songs and wasn't thinking about that aspect of music. It was more just jazz standards and yeah. country covers and stuff. Doing like almost like the gigging musician thing. You that's find a, a gig yeah. and you do it, whether it's weekly, monthly, whatever. So then like how, I mean, this has got to be a couple of years before the, the, the supernova then. Yeah. So then, like, how, I mean, I'm just so curious about this because yeah. I know so few people who are involved with anything like this. I mean, it could, you could take the names of it, could be anybody. Sure. Um, but so then, like, now she's going to make a record. Like, how does that momentum get started? Well, yeah, the whole, the whole story of, of uh, Nora's first record is so improbable um, that I think if any professional musician saw this in a movie and they changed the name and it wasn't Nora Jones, it was just some made up character. You'd, any professional musician would say, you know, that's not really how it happens. That's yeah. not how show business works. Yeah, yeah. But that's how it happened. So what happened was she met this woman, uh, a lady named Shell. I think Shell, Shell White, I want to say. But anyway, uh, who happened to work in the payroll department at Blue Note Records. And at that time, the head of, of Blue Note was a guy named Bruce Lundvall, who just passed away this year. And he had a very open door policy. So he wasn't just accepting demos from like his A&R team, but like if somebody in the payroll department had some music that they thought Bruce should hear, he's bring it to me. So uh, this gal, Shell, brought uh, a little, she made a, she had Nora make like a real simple home demo and brought it to Bruce. Were you on that demo? Or no, I wasn't her? actually. And um, I think at that time, actually, I had moved back to California. It, it's, you know... There was a period where I was going shuttling back and forth yeah, between yeah. San Francisco and New York. So I think I was away. This was after I had done these brunch gigs with her. I was back in California. I got a, a job. It's funny you asked if I was making a living playing music. I moved back to California to take an editing job. I was working as an editor at Guitar Player Magazine. Oh, that's cool. In San Mateo. And um, so Bruce heard this demo. He loved it. And he said, well, what if we did a like 
a little production thing. So I, I think he gave her like a little tiny chunk of money in, in record business terms. And Which she, for a jazz label right. is probably even a different scenario than a, you would imagine like the big gravy train advances that people Oh, no, no, no. This about. wasn't that at all. Well, that's what I mean. It's for, yeah. it's for a jazz label on top of it all. Yeah. it's. I think this was probably, my guess, I don't know, but it was probably yeah. in the low four figures yeah, is yeah, my yeah. guess. And um, so Enough she... Enough to go to a studio. Sure. And that's all it was. See, the, home, the first demo that she turned in, I think was just literally like her in her apartment as my guess. I've never heard that initial demo. But then she went back and Blue Note gave her some money to make what became this five-song EP called First Sessions. Very rare. They pressed a handful of them. And that actually had the song Don't Know Why on it and some other songs. And on the strength of that, Bruce said, you know, let's do this. Let's make a real record. Was that a Jesse Harris song? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Jesse Harris wrote that song. Um, and... At that point, you know, I'm toiling away at my, you know, editor job in San Francisco and I get this email from Nora and she says, look, you know, in the time that you've been gone, I got signed to Blue Note and now we're going to make a record and I'd really love for you to be on it. And within one week, I got an, that Nora, email from Nora Jones, an email from an old girlfriend of mine who lived in New York and asked if I would be interested in subletting her apartment for a year, which was a two-bedroom apartment on the Lower East Side for 500 bucks a month. Whoa. In two, even in 2000, that was <laughs> like basically free. Like yeah. Basically That's free. That's less than half what I was paying three years prior. Yeah. In and I, I thought I could come up with 500 bucks a month busking or whatever. Yeah, like that. Yeah, I, that's yeah. And... She just needed somebody to cover her rent for a year while she went away on a, on a job. And the same week, my oldest friend, who I've known since I was six, um, sent me an email and said, hey, I just got laid off my high-tech job in San Francisco. I'm thinking about taking a road trip from San Francisco to New York. Do you want to go? So now it's like road trip with my oldest friend, uh, essentially free rent in in, a in great, Manhattan in Manhattan on the Lower East Side, which was just blowing up at that time. Yeah, and a chance to play on Nora's record on Blue Note. And at that time, I hadn't played on a lot of like big records. I didn't know the record was going to be big, but even the fact that it was on Blue Note yeah. was important to me because you know just being it's a the most. It's I mean, anyone in music is I understand it. Blue Note is like the jazz sure. premier jazz label. Absolutely, no question. Okay. So I did it. I walked into my boss's office in uh, Guitar Player, and I said, man, I'm man. sorry, but I got to do this. You know, I, I, I got to take this chance. And he said, man, I, he was super supportive, yeah. thankfully. I mean, I would have quit anyway, but it wasn't messy. Yeah. And uh, two weeks later, I got in the car with my friend Alan, and we drove across the country, and then I made this record with Nora at this tiny little studio in Manhattan. People, yeah. When people think of that record, I think people always imagine, you know, it sort of was this like high-budget, fancy-pants Sony record. Studios or Capitol Records not or at something. All. Uh, a very small uh, studio that's not even there anymore called Sorcerer Sound on Mercer Street. It was at 19 Mercer. And uh, we made that record. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. I want to talk about the blowing up phase, but first I want you to play another tune. This oh, sure. is not going to be all about Nora Jones, I guarantee you. Okay. I, I'm just trying to get through that phase, because it's just such a unique thing for a musician to go through. Such a great story. So what, yeah. what song is, of yours is next year? Uh, actually, I'm going to play uh, with Rich. We're going to play a song called Between the Bars. Okay. It's a, a song that has words, but we're not going to sing them. We're going to play instrumentally. It's, it's by a songwriter named Elliot Smith. Oh, yeah, a lot of people know who Elliot Smith is. I, myself, I, I remember where I was one of those people. You remember where you were when you found out they had died. There's a handful of those people. Yeah. 
and he was one of such an amazing talent, such a great loss. So thank you while well, keeping, you know, keeping what he did alive a little bit. So Adam Levy, along with Rich Hinman, Between the Bars by Elliot Smith on Independence Day. My name is Joe Armstrong. Thank you so much for listening to Independence Day. Drop by indepday.com, I-N-D-E-P-D-A-Y, to hear these episodes. Also, indepday.com slash iTunes, fully Apple-enabled, so you can check out all the all the, the great podcasts there. Uh, we've got an Instagram channel these days, instagram.com slash indepday, and also, as always, you can follow us on Twitter at indepday, and YouTube. So many web things. I feel like it's like house cleaning. YouTube.com slash in-depth-day videos. Lots of videos there. Adam, thank you for coming in, sharing these stories. So fantastic. Adam Levy's my guest. Hi, Joe. Say hello, Adam. Uh, so, all right, just a little bit more about Nora that we can get on with your life. Sure. But like, so now the records come out. Yeah. And, you know, I, I imagine the people at Blue Note were hoping to sell, I mean, obviously as many as possible. Right. But nobody could have known. No, because as many as possible in jazz means like 3,000 records. Yeah. Yeah, because and this is before you know that that scale has shifted even more drastically since that time, yeah. because the internet just cut the bottom out of everything. So yeah. now people aren't even pressing 
stuff as much as they did at all. So right. many people I know just do fully internet releases. That's what I've been doing. Town and country. My yeah. latest record is internet only, or I uh, shouldn't say internet only. Did it's digital only? I guess. I guess by default that does mean internet, internet only. only. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How else could you get? I can't like beam it to you from my uh, phone or something. But anyway, yeah. That's that's how I've gone. I've stopped making CDs. Yeah. So the the point is that you know to say that you know they were expecting you know moderate sales right. and a jazz label right. in two thousand and one or so. Right. You know versus now where people aren't even pressing things. You know if you if, you, if a band sells, I mean even a major label artist like Tom Petty, if he sells, what do you think fifty a hundred thousand copies of something that's considered a success now? Huge. That would be huge now. But yeah, yeah at the, in the eighties. 100,000 copies yeah. would be nothing for it Tom It wouldn't Petty. even call you. No. You know, no you'd be dropped from your label is yeah. what would happen. Dave Matthews, I know, built up his career by selling. He said he'd sold over 100,000 records out of his van while they were touring up and down the East I Coast. I believe it. They into, and just indie releases before indie was indie. Yeah. And it's funny to think of him as being an independent artist, but he was for so very long. Yeah. And then that he couldn't even get the attention of record labels having sold that many records. Right, because I think at that time, the connection between touring, selling records out of the back of your van, uh, I don't know that record labels really got what that was about, you know? Um, yeah. But obviously, they they eventually bought, bought in on Dave Matthews. That's funny. I, I just yeah. remembered early on with Nora, one of our first big gigs that we got to do, we did a week opening for the Dave Matthews Oh, my band, God. Doing like, you know, really? Hershey Park. That's like huge football very, stadiums. Very odd double bill. Very odd double bill. We had gone from playing for like 10 people in a coffee shop. And then, you know, by the time we were, Nora's record was selling, I think what happened is that her record label just didn't know what to do. So they were putting her with different people. You know, we, yeah. we did some shows opening for Taj Mahal, which actually made sense. Yeah, that makes sense. We played at the Ark in... Um, in Ann Arbor, and we played at um, the Fitzgerald Theater in St. Paul. So we're so you're getting into theaters by right. this point. So that made sense. But then, and we did some shows opening for the Indigo Girls, and then we did which this, makes sense. Uh, that makes sense. And then the Dave Matthews thing to me made no real sense, except that it really was fun. His his fans they liked it. It was just strange for us to be playing in a f- football stadium with a little yeah. four piece acoustic band, um, and. I just mentioned it when because you said you know when Dave Matthews started as an indie artist. By the time of, of us opening for him, it was such we'd never seen anything like it. Every guy in the band had his own tour bus. You know, they had probably, Dave Matthews band. You mean. Yeah, the Dave Matthews band had his own. Tour. We had just gotten our first tour bus for all of us, including Which our is crew. A huge step. Huge step. Because people don't realize how expensive a tour bus right. is. If you see a band out on the road on tour, right. either they're bankrolling it or they're at some kind of level of success. Because the overhead on one of those buses alone, I want to say. Is it ten grand a week? Maybe much more than that. Could be more. Just the bus, right? And the driver, right? Just ten grand out a week out the door, right? Probably and, more, and probably more. And now you think like, okay, now there's six buses because everyone in the band has a right. bus. Uh, crew is crew on bus. a bus, probably more than one crew bus. Probably for them. more than one for them. You know, twenty big rig trucks. Wow. We just never imagined anything like that. You know, we thought yeah. maybe like maybe that would be the Rolling Stones, but to see people that were kind of our age at that level was just so mind blowing for yeah. us. So then, okay, so now. What's the feat? Because the band was a four piece when it started selling. It was you, Nora, was it Lee? Lee Alexander. Alexander. Yeah. He's an upright player. And then upright. who was the drummer? 
Uh, Andrew Borger. Oh yes. Yeah. Yes. Who he? Yeah. People might know him. He played with Tom Waits. That's how I knew him. Was from Tom. Yeah. Um, played with a songwriter named Elaine Mandel. Who oh, we had her know. on the show. Yeah. Yeah. So he he was playing with her actually when he got the call to do the Nora Jones gig, and he had to he had to finish out his commitment with her on tour. Yeah. So we were kind of waiting for him to join our band. We did a bunch of dates on tour as a trio without drums, just waiting for Andrew. Yeah. So, okay, so now there's a four-piece, and I, I'm trying to go back in my mind, like how quickly that ball started rolling. Like you're doing theaters, and now you've got a bus. And then like at what point did like you look around at each other and be like, holy but Jesus, yeah. Like, how long was that in? Like, it was after a the record while. was released, like six months, a year. It was somewhere in between that, I would say. Um, you know, the record came out. Um, I think February '02. I think, and it really wasn't until the Grammys the next year when it was things like a blew, year later. Yeah, when things really blew up. But I do remember we used to play this steady gig. Um, in New York, the bar, the club's not there anymore. It was called Makor, M-A-K-O-R. And it was kind of like this Jewish cultural center up near Lincoln Center and yeah. Juilliard. And we were playing there every week for free, wow. like on Wednesday nights, two sets, and largely playing to crickets and a few odd music nerds who just yeah. figured out that we were doing something cool. And then uh, towards the end of 2002, Nora... Um, Rolling Stone magazine every year does their like who's going to be hot next year issue. And so that year they were predicting like John Mayer's going to be hot, Nora Jones is going to be hot, and a few other people, some of whom were hot for a minute and some weren't. But th- that Rolling Stone article actually, not just being in Rolling Stone, but the next week, our free gig that we'd been doing for months that nobody seemed to care about was packed. They were turning people away from wow. that gig. So that single moment, I think, was actually pretty huge for us. Yeah. And then from there, I mean, it's. I was just looking this up the other day. I mean, worldwide to date, we're looking at 23 million worldwide. Yeah. You know? Uh, yeah. Which is, in the modern age, is damn near unheard of. Yeah. Like, I don't know, because I don't follow the yeah. news that much, but I don't know what Taylor Swift sells, but... Uh, yeah, I don't either, honestly. But... And then after Taylor Swift, like there's a very steep drop, yeah. and I don't, I can't imagine anybody t- today selling, you know, tens of millions of records. Yeah, and I, I mean, I'll, I'll say this, and we can kind of, we can get back to your stuff. I just, okay. I really wanted to catch that, ride that wave with you once, sure, and, sure, because it, I've had this feeling that it captured the zeitgeist of our country when it did, and I think it, September 11th had something to do with that. I agree. I think that. Because, you know, if anyone criticized, the people that I knew that were criticizing Nora Jones, you know, the uh, get away from me, remember that whole, right. you know, any, anything that gets that big culturally has sure. detractors. It's, sure. it's impossible to not. Even if it's great, fantastic, it doesn't matter. There are people who hate the Beatles. Robbie Rust, I'm looking at you. And, <laughs> but we had been, like, wounded yeah. very, very deeply That's as a right. culture in a way that we had never been wounded before. No, Civil War people were all dead and gone. That was maybe the next closest thing. Right. World War II came and went. Yes, a huge cultural event, but it wasn't here. Right. And it wasn't New York, which is the heart of our society. And I, I, this is my theory, but I think that we were ailing in a way. And to have her come along and sing to us in a gentle way 
in a and and to look back and because she would she seems to me she was very good about picking material from um who else was on that record uh, uh she covered she, tom waits on the second on the record, second I think. record yeah but, but then she, the first she did a hank williams, hank williams yeah and louis armstrong was that that song that was kind of half hers i don't really remember. oh no there's an ellington song oh, that, ellington. that she wrote lyrics to yeah. an instrumental ellington song that's right and then but she would draw or towns at yeah. one point she was so she was very good about drawing from these things yeah so like people from the american catalog and yeah. then interpreting it and singing in a gentle way and then having people like you or you specifically who are could play to that very uh-huh. well not overplay mm-hmm. and the rest of the musicians did that very well and i think I, I think that's aside from the fact that it's great that's why it exploded i i i really agree it's funny i've i've had glimpses of that same thought that the timing of her success falling as it did you know right after september 11th i don't think is coincidental um you know, I I've sometimes wondered if if you know President Kennedy being shot didn't have something to do with us welcoming the Beatles so warmly. Like yeah. we just need four cute guys singing yeah. in harmony. Yeah, um, it's anodyne. I feel like yeah. you know we uh, culturally you know even as diverse as America is, we we felt. You know, I remember Springsteen. There's a time. I mean, we'll get off this. Now we're on talking about September 11th. When the towers were You're still... You're bringing me down, man. I know. I'm sorry, man. <laughs> the towers were still burning. Yeah. And Bruce could see it from where he lived. He oh. drove up to a bridge overpass where he right. was. Maybe this was from a Rolling Stone article. Okay. And he was out there looking at them. Or maybe it was a few days after, but he was looking at the smoke okay. was still there. You could still see sure. it was visibly there. Sure. And, you know, it's Bruce Springsteen, American icon, one of the biggest icons we have in the modern age. Sure. And someone drove by and was like, Bruce, we need you. Hmm. And he was like, holy crap. Yeah. They're right. And he took on the mantle. He did the rising, which is a different answer oh, yeah. of the same kind of thing. Come away with me was not an intentional answer. It was no. just the record she would have done, right? But right. because it came out when it did, it became that, right? Unrelated uh, uh, artistically, right? But related culturally. Yeah. Anyway, let's close the book on that Nora okay. Jones. But one okay. one last question about sure. the Nora Jones thing. You played with her for how many years? Um. Well. Like six or eight or so? Somewhere, something like that. Okay. Because the last question, this is how we're going to pivot. Okay. This whole Ooh. thing. We're going to pivot back to you and what you okay. think. When you're in a band like that, now you're, you're, you had to have been making a decent living doing this. Yeah. You're selling out as big a place as you want to sell out, as right. many nights as you want to sell right. out. What was it in you that made you decide that you had to go? Oh, wow. Well, that's a good question. It's, it was twofold. One is I felt like if I was ever going to go, that it would be nice in, <laughs> to go when things were at the height of things and not, you know. Uh, go out on top. To go out on top. You know, she had three really solid records, came from nowhere. Nobody, when I was playing with her, I can't tell you how many people when she first, when I first started playing with people like Nora, who, who, who is it? Yeah. And to see that, to see her rise like she did was, was just a, a, a real genuine thrill, thrill ride. And, um, so I kind of felt like maybe that was time to go, but I mean, the, the real, you know, center of it at that time, um, I was married at the time, uh, to a woman who, uh, had cancer and oh you know, the doctors were saying, you know, 
this is how long we think you have. And, um, you know, Nora at that level was, I mean, we'd go out on tour, you know, 10 weeks without coming home and then come home for a week and then go out another 10 weeks. And I just thought, you know, I didn't know how much more time I was going to have with my wife. So 10 weeks seemed like a really long time to be away from it home. It is a really long time. Yeah. And so that was the biggest part of my decision is I just wanted to stay home more. I, I didn't yeah. want to be on the bus. And um, yeah, my wife passed away in, in 2009. My gosh, I'm so sorry. Oh, It's a terrible thing for anyone to have to go through. Very, yeah. very sorry. Um, now, did... Did you, when that happened, did music, did you step away from music at all? I mean, is it your career? Were you able to step away from music at all? Because now you've stepped away from the band that was like the big gig. Yeah. And you've done the right thing in yeah. terms of your life. Yeah. Um, did you, what was your relationship to music <laughs> having gone through that huge change yeah. in both respects? That's a good question. Um yeah, so I the, my last gig with Nora Jones was at the tail end of 2007. We had a gig in Poland. It was the end of this long tour, and for the next year, I didn't pl- I didn't do any touring. But I was playing this funny little bar in New York that's not there anymore. It was called Banjo Gyms, and that's really all I could do. I couldn't. So my memory was a little bit fuzzy, so it was, it's actually hard for me to play with other people to like memorize ten or twenty or thirty songs uh, from somebody else's catalog. But I was able to remember my own songs. Okay. So I was doing a gig, uh, a weekly gig at this funny little bar, and I would invite guests, and we called it Adam Levy's Wish List. Cool. And I got to host a whole bunch of my friends, and and that was fun. That was my kind of escapism. Um, this bar was a little bit, felt like anything could happen there in, in a good way, and in, in a way that I think is missing in New York these days. But it was really loose and fun, and the cops shut us down several times. Oh, wow. <laughs> so were you doing, uh, if the cops are shutting you down, are you doing something that's a little more raucous? Are you turning up the amps a little bit? It wasn't that just... loud, no. But what happened was we were just packing in way too many people. Okay. And people a were good dan- problem. That's a good problem. And people were dancing. And I don't know if, if your listeners know, but there's this still obscure law on the books that started in the jazz era that in order to have dancing in a club, you needed a special license. Just like you need in a New license. York, you mean? Well, everywhere. But it's still it's still on the books in New York. Uh, I don't know about other cities, but... Um, damn Puritans. Pardon? It's a damn Puritans. Yeah, the Puritans. So... If you want to have dancing in a club, you need a license, just like you need a license to sell liquor. Um, but this club wasn't licensed for dancing. And what happened is, if you turns out if you play rocking music and serve alcohol, people just are going to dance. It's and, a beautiful thing about the human experience. Right. But this club, Banjo Gyms, they had a neighbor who didn't like that having this excitement going on there. And so he would regularly call the cops and say, hey, there's there's dancing going on at Banjo Gyms. Oh, man. And the cops would come down, and sure enough, there'd be a couple people. I mean, it wasn't a, a, you know, a crazy dance fest, but they they shut it down. It wasn't like West Side Story. No, it wasn't. No, dude. <laughs> no, it wasn't anything like West Side Story. Um, and eventually, the owner, bless her heart, uh, Banjo Lisa, her name was, is... Just got tired. Like, you know, she would have to go down to the courthouse and like yeah. fill out this paper. And eventually it just got tiring, really. Yeah. 
And I think probably if she had the money, she probably could have paid off her neighbor. This is a very New York thing. It's like, you know what, here's some money, go away. And that's how people settle that stuff in New York. But she didn't have that kind of money or just didn't yeah. want to. So that, I was doing that for about a year. And then I got a funny call um, uh, another year after that to play. Oh, I, right around that time, I did some gigs with Lisa Loeb, actually, um, who's great. But I mean, we did... we. That was just a, a brief period. But then the guy who owns the New York Knicks is a guy named James Dolan. If anybody follows basketball, they'll know his name. And he owns Cablevision, which is a big New York uh, cable provider. He's a gajillionaire. You know, it'd be like playing for Warren Buffett or something. And he yeah. has a band, uh, Jim does, Jim Dolan. And he called and asked if I would want to do some tour dates with him, which was fun because he's buddies with the Eagles. So we were like opening for the Eagles and stuff. And it felt like a fun thing to do. It got me out of the house. That was yeah. the first thing that really got me out of the funk that I was in. I was writing songs, but I wasn't... They were very inward kind of songs. Yeah. Yeah, and those kinds of gigs, you know, as a musician, we get offers to do, especially a professional full-time musician, to get... Unless you're in a band that's established and you're doing that regularly, that's like your main... Like if you're in Wilco, right? right? That's your retainer gig. Yeah. When they call, you go. Right. You're part of your band. You're, that's a thing. Sure. But when you're kind of a musician kind of in the wild, like you have the opportunity. So, you know, you might miss having that camaraderie of one thing, but you're also free, like free range. You can take the gig with the guy who owns Cablevision. And right. I imagine that like doing a gig with him is probably pretty low stress. Very low stress. Well, <laughs> there were stressful well, elements. The bus is going to be clean. It's going yeah. to be there. It's the not bus going to be is on clean. Fire. The thread count is high. Right. That's yeah. what I mean. Yeah. It's, it's it's not the type of gig. I mean, there's stress with everything. Sure. But it's more of uh, those types of problems are that the, the normal musicians take up the most of their time, which are right. non music related. Right. Are, are probably, All that stuff was taken care of. Right. Organizationally, a very easy right. organization. Okay, yeah. so now I feel better now. We brought it back up to a positive and somewhat yeah. lighthearted place. I want to talk about writing sure. and like your relationship with guitar how, yeah. and your and like music, music. How you got where you came from, where you where you got to be as a writer and a performer. Yeah. But first, let's hear what that sounds like. Another okay. song. What's next, Adam? Uh, this is a song called "A Promise to California." That's an intri- it's an intriguing title. I stole it. Okay. Um, I stole it from Walt Whitman. Uh, well, if you're going to steal, steal from the best. That's <laughs> and uh, his song was really about, you know, it's kind of a, I mean, not a song, his poem. poem. Yeah. Uh, it's just a very short, probably 10 or 12 line poem that's kind of a, a little love poem to California. And when I wrote my song, A Promise to California, I was thinking about sort of a Johnny Appleseed kind of character who keeps in mind that as beautiful as California is, most people are never going to see it. Even most Americans have never been to California. So this kind of Johnny Appleseed character puts California in a bottle, like a little bit of sand, a little bit of sunshine, a little bit of wind. Palm frond, maybe. Yeah, exactly. And as he travels around, he just kind of like sprinkles a little bit of California dust wherever he goes for the benefit of those who don't get to see it. And that's what the song was to me. That's wonderful. I love that metaphor. That's fantastic. It reminds me of uh, Dandelion Wine. You ever read Dandelion oh, Wine? Oh, yeah. Which is my favorite book of mm. all time. No hyperbole, no exaggeration. It is unequivocally my favorite book. The whole idea is that they, they make wine from dandelion flowers, and they put it in the cellar. And then on cold winter days, and Bradbury describes it in such beautiful prose, 
they go out and they dispense just the littlest tippling amount Hmm. and you sip it and then all of summer comes rushing back those days where this the yellow light and the 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 idyllic summer languorous times Mm. and you know when you need it the most you know Mm. and that's that's great metaphor fantastic good work (laughs) thanks you're a genius adam Anyway, all right, my guest this week, Adam Levy, having such a wonderful time talking with him. Uh, This is his song, A Promise to California, on Independence Day. I was a pioneer, panning for gold. I was a young man, 25 years old. I left my family back in Texas, and I headed for the West. I never knew what fortune was before As soon as I crossed that state line Heard the harmony that never ends In the echoes of the canyon In the center and a wind In the crash of the Pacific In the calling of the birds I made a promise to California and I never break my word I made some new friends jokers and thieves we fought like brothers yeah you'd never believe once we hit the mother load There was no turning back I never knew what fortune was before Soon as I crossed that state line Heard the harmony that never ends In the echoes of the canyons In the Santa Ana wind In the crash of the Pacific the calling of the birds I made a promise to California and I never break my word so so many people never leave their own hometown no they'll never see the sign up in Never know the sunset melting through the haze of another picture perfect postcard day. So I found a bottle empty inside. I fill it with sun and wind and the moon and the tide. And I always keep it with me as I wander this weary world. I spill a little of that spirit everywhere I go. They won't never get there, but they'll know. Soon as I cross that state line, heard the harmony that never ends. In the echoes of the canyon, in a center and a wind, in the crash of the Pacific, 
in the calling of the birds I made a promise to California I made a promise to California I made a promise to California and I never break my word No, I never break my My name is Joe Armstrong. My guest this week on Independence Day, Adam Levy. Drop by adamlevy.com. See what kind of pictures he puts up on Instagram at instagram.com slash, I love this, instagram.com slash string underscore juggler underscore. It's hard to even say that. Yeah. And also soundcloud.com string juggler. He's worked with some of the best people in the business, and he's an exemplary musician on his in his own right. And that's what I want to talk about right now before we get to the next song. Okay. Um, would you call yourself a jazz guitar player or is that just kind of an ad hoc descriptor because it's hard because it, when i think of your playing it's hard to pin you down which is yeah. a good thing yeah but sometimes you got to be able to, like what's your elevator pitch huh. somebody meets you you're on your you've got uh, you're going to the top of a very tall building right oh mr levy you play guitar oh are you like jimmy page are you like buddy miller are you like uh barney kessel like what's yeah. what's your elevator pitch Joe, that is a million dollar question. I've I've thought about I this. Ten bucks. Give me how far will ten dollars get me? Um, I've thought about that many times, and I still don't have a good answer. I bristle when people call me a jazz guitar player. I bristle a little bit only because, in my mind, I picture a guy with a tweed jacket and a big hollow body like an guitar, L5. right, on a strap, but way up high under his chin. And um, I, that's not really what I do, though I have tremendous respect for for yeah. those guys. But so I kind of I bristles not even the word. I just I balk at it because when I say that, then I I am concerned that people that's yeah. what they'll think. But that said, I have a jazz sensibility in whatever I'm doing, it, which is to say, I like to have a kind of a freewheeling approach. So if I'm playing a pop song. Um, there's even in a very pop context. There's still improvisation. There's still being in the moment. There's still reacting. reaction to other players. Exactly, listening to what else is going on. Ooh. Sorry, my research assistant Dorothy June just had a bad dream. Oh, go on. Okay, yeah. So to me, the what makes what I what makes me a jazz guitar player is that I react to the other musicians who are playing with me. I'm in the moment. Uh, I don't plan too much what I'm going to play. Um, so that's what makes me a jazz guitar player. It's not that I have uh, you know, a yeah. last name that ends with a vowel. I don't know why there's a jazz guitar. You're not I was... smoking clove cigarettes and wearing a beret or no. anything like that. No, here, I'd like to make very, very clear, this is my one disclaimer that I will give you sure. as, as a, a new friend. Sure. I'm not trying to put you in a box in, okay. in any way. Because I, right. I don't feel like labels are terribly important, especially for us internally. Like I don't, I don't need this description to know what bin to put you in in the record right. business. I'm just trying to give the listeners an idea of because what you do really does you you said it exactly before maybe 15 minutes ago or so there's this little this little island that is kind of 
it's not fought over, but it's like it's maybe like a Caribbean island because mm. the influences of country, of jazz, a little bit of rock, a little bit of folk, they all like New Orleans in a way. They all yeah. exist there yeah. and they all coexist there. Yeah. And that's what that's that how they coexist in you. Because you listen to the stuff you did with Matt Chamberlain and it's mm. very groovy. Yeah. Doing my best Chamberlain like beatbox <laughs> pretty impression. Good. Um a and uh wait, wait, from Edie Burkell. I've done all my Chamberlain fills. I've got them all down. But, um, or wait, Wallflowers. That's the four and the four beat. Anyway. Like 10 years ago, there was a, a trend of these like Mr. T in your pocket. You get a, a keychain yeah. with like mm-hmm. six famous Mr. T phrases and it's actually him. I think you should do Matt Chamberlain in your pocket. I could do Aronoff too, but not as well. <laughs> The thing about doing Aronoff is that this is Kenny Aronoff, this is longtime so drummer funny. from uh, John Mellencamp's yeah. band, is that one, two, he he started so many songs with a snare beat on four. Hmm. You go back and listen to all those Mellencamp songs. Right. One, two, three, ba, ding, 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 ding. Yeah. The band is off, whatever the tempo. Like, yeah. and there was a point I had a sampler and I sampled a bunch of them because I loved his snare sound and they were all different because I'm uh-huh. sure they're all different snares. Right. We're getting way off into musical geek land here. Love it. But let's let's pull it back into this this island. There's this island that you exist on where all these things happen, where yeah. like Matt Chamberlain drums kind of meet in with jazz standards, where like the Nora Jones version of a Wurlitzer Wurlitzer jazz because yeah. that's like do, people don't do Wurlitzer jazz. Not people much. do Rhodes jazz. Right. People do piano jazz. But sure. she would do it on the Wurlitzer, which yeah. is grittier. Yeah. You know? And and I love this world that you inhabit. Um, so tell me, like, who are the people that made you want to play music? Like, did you come from a musical family? Um, were there somebody there? Or was it an artist you heard? Was it watching the monkeys? Mm. Like, what was it? Uh, no, uh, probably watching the Muppet Show more than watching the oh, monkeys. Oh, great. But I did, I did like the monkeys when I was a kid. Uh, um, it's funny you mentioned uh, you mentioned Mike Nesmith when we were talking yeah. earlier off mic. Um, I do come from a musical family. My uh, grandfather w- was a composer and band leader and arranger. He worked in television. Um, he wrote two songs that I'm sure you would know. I don't know if all your listeners would know, but he wrote a Christmas song called It's the Most Wonderful Time mm-hmm. of the Year. Uh, who, who, what version is the one that you always hear in Pier 1 when you're shopping? Well, Andy Johnny Williams. Johnny Mathis? I no, think, my grandfather did hear. also work with Johnny Mathis, but but Andy Williams probably had the, the biggest hit with It's the Most Wonderful Time it's of the, the Year. It's the most wonderful time yeah. of the yeah, year. Yeah, it was written for him, and uh, my grandfather was his musical director at the time. So that was a big hit. And then my grandfather also, believe it or not, wrote the theme song to Gilligan's Island. He wrote cool. the ballad of Gilligan's Island. So, huh? But, you know, when I was a kid, he would often take me to recording sessions. Ah. Um, so I had an impression of recording sessions as being 20 guys in a room in shirts and ties. Which it was. Which it was. Even though it was a holdover. I mean, I'm talking about in the early 70s now. Yeah. You know, already sessions were starting to become guys with longer hair and, you know, rock and roll and things things were were changing a lot but the guys that my grandfather worked with were still sort of holdovers from the kind right. of wrecking crew they were crew. so entrenched that they could get they could still get they gigs still, and people like, were still Hal, doing it that way yeah Hal Blaine was still working relentlessly like you know many sessions a day and I got to meet Hal Blaine when I was a tiny kid through my grandfather so that was my impression of of music and the music business and I just I loved records I I remember 
I had a record player in my room, even when I was like nine or 10 years old yeah. and, and access to my mom's records, or we'd go to the store and even I just liked really mainstream pops. I remember, I know I had some KTEL records. I don't know if you remember KTEL mm-hmm, records, course. but these are the sort of compilations and, and I, I don't know, music was just really exciting to me. I could never get enough of it. And it, um, I got into the Beatles, mostly later Beatles, like because my mom had Abbey Road and Sgt. Pepper, so I thought that was the Beatles. I didn't know anything about the Ed Sullivan show or anything like that. And then, um, I don't know, my uncle, my mom's brother, played guitar, and he would make me these mixtapes with like Doc Watson on one side and Chet Atkins on the other side, and he had some Rykuda records that I was interested in, and... So I, I kind of got it from some different directions. My grandfather from the like professional showbiz right. thing, and then my uncle who was more of like a folky finger picking, you know, Stefan Grossman kind of yeah. guy. And then my cousin, who's the same age as me, was really into rock, so he would show me Zeppelin songs. And, yeah. Uh, you know, I just honestly wanted to play with people. I was no good at sports or chess or anything. Uh, and the music came really easy to me. So as soon as I could play the guitar, I was like, oh, I can do this and I can do this with so other people. why guitar? That's a good question. Uh, well, I started with piano because that's what my granddad played and I, I thought it was pretty special. But it turned out I was terrible at it. I, I took a bunch of lessons and I learned all the stuff and I couldn't do it. Then I tried clarinet because my mom said, why don't you join the school band and you could you know, do something social. Go legit, Adam. Go legit. <laughs> And I was terrible at clarinet. I mean, honestly, I just didn't practice very much. So that probably explains why I didn't get better. <laughs> uh, kids, if you're listening. And um, and then I went to summer camp uh, when I was probably like 12. And I saw some guitars. It was really my first exposure to being around guitars and songs. And they were singing probably like Dan Fogelberg and stuff like that. And, and the girls were all doe-eyed. yeah. And I was doe-eyed. I just yeah. thought it was really beautiful. And I went home and I, I told my mom, I said, well, that's just, and, she, and she says to me, you know, we have a guitar in the house. I did not know this. My mom, before I was born, took some folk guitar classes, like Hang Down Your Head, Tom Dooley. Yeah, and yeah. So we go in this, you know, closet, and like behind the vacuum and the broom and the cleaning products is this guitar case. And she dusts it off and opens it up. And she remembered how to tune it. And she tuned it. She handed it to me. And I don't think she saw me again for about the next five years. Yeah. Were you, so you're, they were supportive of this, though? Totally. Oh, that's one. You know what? I ask that question sometimes, and everybody's answer is different, but I, nothing pleases me more than to hear what you just said. Mm. Because some people, they're gonna, the kid's going to be damned if they don't do it. If the kid gets bitten by the bug, boy, girl, doesn't matter, they're going to do the music thing. Well, I mean, in a way, what could my mom say? Because, you know, my grandfather's ASCAP checks put her through college. Right. So, you know, she knew it was possible to make money in music, even though it's very unlikely. Yeah. She, she knew it was possible. And I think just that much really saved my bacon. Because yeah. if we didn't have that in my family, I could... I mean, my mother's been supportive of me in pretty much every way I can ever think of. So... I'm sure she would have found a way to be emotionally supportive, but may have tried to steer me towards something a little more steady. But yeah. the irony is, the you know, at, at that time when I was a teenager, music seemed like a really dangerous job and office jobs seemed really safe. And I think these days... <laughs> 
office jobs don't seem as safe anymore. Yeah. You know, the one office job I ever had as I was an editor at Guitar Player Magazine seemed steady. I had a 401k. Yeah. I had an insurance plan. But at that time, the staff was almost 10 people, plus yeah. the ad people. You know, magazines, it's not a safe place to work anymore. No, no. I work in, you know, media, journalism, and know lots and lots of people. Just this week, uh, LA Times facing another huge round of cuts, and I have personal friends. I feel like I'm going to call them up on Monday or text them tonight. I don't want to text them tonight. Good God, they might be at the bar (laughs) for a very sad reason. But I'll call them early next week, you know, and I mean, it's, it's, this is going to sound like a terrible reference, but it's like Schindler's List in a way. Did you make it? Did you not make it? You know, and and it's going to get worse before it gets better. Nobody wants to pay for it. Everybody wants cheap t-shirts, but nobody wants to pay what it costs to have people employed to actually make a t-shirt. It's like that song, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Yeah, indeed. So, okay, so now let's talk about writing. Okay. Right, because, you know, being a musician and writing are not necessarily mutually exclusive, right? You yeah. can be a player, a fantastic player, and never really write. Sure. And was was that something you always wanted to do? Was it always in there, or did it come later? Came much I mean, later. You had songs in the Nora Jones records that you had written. Uh, yeah, she recorded, she recorded two of my songs. Um, it was a, really no. I never wanted to be a songwriter ever. Uh, when I was a kid, I would write sort of parody songs, like you do, like you know, take Beatles songs and make them mm-hmm. about uh, crude things or Mad magazine writ as a song. Exactly, exactly. That's a great way to put it. Uh, but never had any inclination to really write any songs. I always wanted to be the guitar player in the band. You know, I wanted to be kind of a silent partner. You know. Um, and it's more of a bass player attitude. Yeah, I think it's funny. I forgot until you just said that. But before I got really into the guitar, there was like a brief period. I had an one. Okay, so the first guitar I had was my mom's guitar. What kind Her, of guitar was it? It was a Crown. It was a very inexpensive nylon string guitar. Okay. I remember the brand was Crown. Who knows where it was made? I'm guessing somewhere in Asia. I don't know. But anyway. Um, that was my first guitar. But before I got my first electric guitar, I had an electric bass for about a year. And I, it didn't work out. I don't know what happened. I think one friend of mine borrowed it and never been moved away or whatever. I don't know. But I, it's funny you say that because I do feel like my attitude about playing music is more bass player-like. Even though you know I take guitar solos, it's not what I live for. I really like to be in the groove. Yeah. You know, And I like harmony as being driven from the you know low notes and stuff so yeah and i play with flat wound strings on my electric guitar which is more of a bass player thing but um so no to answer your question i never thought about songwriting ever um so how did when did that worm turn like what got you to do that well um when i was living in new york in the late 90s and got really into jazz and then that's 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 a heavy thing to like if you're a jazz musician because when you're i feel like there's a lot more uh Pratt falls with writing in jazz because you oh. can't just write a crappy jazz song. Uh, Everyone will know right away it's yeah. a crappy jazz yep. song. Like you can write a folk song and go pretty far with the amount of chords you've got if you just know a handful of chords and remedial understanding of music theory, how to put me- melody and harmony together, and come up with something halfway decent. But you cannot be a faker in jazz. No, no. So, oh, what happened was you know I'd, I'd always played with singer songwriters you know but before i started writing songs i had played 
in Tracy Chapman's band for a little bit. Um, when I lived in San Francisco, I played with Dan Hicks and the Acoustic Warriors. I don't know if people will remember Dan Hicks, but he's a yeah, great yeah. songwriter. Hot right? Yep. And, you know, a bunch of other people that maybe you wouldn't know, but who in their towns, in their times, were, were pretty important players. And I moved to New York, and I played with some singer-songwriters there. But when I joined, I never wanted to write any songs. But what happened was peer pressure. Uh, in Nora's band, when we, got, when we got our first bus and we're sort of effectively living together, you know, me and her and the bass player and the drummer, um, she's into writing songs. Lee, the bass player, is into writing songs. He wrote some songs on her first couple records. Um, um, and everybody's writing songs, and nobody's practicing bebop licks on the bus. Everybody's like listening to the band. Because that's a study. Right. It's, it's an avocation, this right. songwriting thing. It's very, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but like people don't think about this as being separate. Or, or a separate avocation that you can do. Again, like Nashville, there are people who aren't terribly good players. They focus exclusively right. on writing as a thing. It's so serious. And I didn't. that's what I didn't appreciate until that moment. I just thought people were struck by lightning and songs came to them in their dreams. Um, and sometimes it does. Uh, yeah, sometimes it does. Usually not. Usually not. And I don't know why. I, th- I mean, being a musician, that was a really naive thing. Because when I thought about how much I'd had to practice to play the guitar and play jazz you know, why wouldn't it be the same for songwriting? So that's what I, I, the peer pressure was everybody on the bus was writing songs. And I, I thought, okay, I'll try it. So I started listening to, you know, uh, Graham Parsons and the band and Bob Dylan, you know, people, you know. You knew who to listen to. I knew who to listen to. And, you know, people were happy to share their iPods around It's a different set of ears. I'm sorry, again, it's a different set of ears that you're listening to when you're studying the writing as you're studying the production, you're studying the playing, the improvisation, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, that's really true. So I started, like, I had a notebook and I would start transcribing lyrics, like, of course, you could go on the internet and find the lyrics to, you know, uh, Simple Twist of Fate. But it, it was different for me when I actually sat with my earphones in and a notebook and wrote it out longhand. And then you could really see what it was made of. And um, uh, I just gave it a shot. I, I wrote a song called In the Morning. At that time, I was really into to Chris Whitley. I don't know if you know mm-hmm. his, his name. But he had this kind of like bluesy. He just he had this record that I loved. It was called Dirt Floor, and um, I was thinking about that record. I tried to write something that was had some prosaic lyrics and a bluesy feeling to it. And I wrote it and I I presented it to Nora, and she was like, "That's great. Let's try it at Soundcheck." And I was like, "Wait, this is my first song. We, we can't try it at Soundcheck." Good God! Wait, wait, wait! Right. Stop for just a second. Right. You're telling me. And everybody else in the universe, that your first song was played in the situation of Nora Jones Band when they were, you with them were on yeah. top of the game, yes. top of the world. Yes. That's amazing. This is between the first record and the second record. So Dude, I want to kiss you on the mouth. <laughs> that is so awesome. That's incredible. Yeah. So uh, it went from being a sound check song to a song that we recorded. And so she recorded it for her second record. Wow. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and then uh, I wrote another song called Moon Song, which she recorded. It didn't come out on the record, but it's on, like, if you buy the bonus edition of that record, it it was recorded, you know, and we're talking about recording at a world-class studio with Arif Martin producing and, you know, a room full of tremendous musicians. It was really a songwriter's dream come true, so much so that after that I freaked out and got cold feet and didn't write another song again for a few years because... Wow, yeah. 
I was like, whoa, 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 hold on. I, it felt like it was kind of out of my control, which in retrospect, everything is out of your control. So I don't know why I thought I should. It just felt kind of crazy to me. Yeah. So I didn't start really seriously writing again until a few years after that. And then I, I made this record called Washing Day, uh, which I recorded in 2006. I've got it written down here. Washing Day 2007 is when it was released, at least. It released in December, recorded in 2006. So that was my next kind of batch of songs. And that came out of co writing. Um, I had a friend who was friends with Chris Difford, who's the lyricist from Squeeze. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Tempted by the Fruit of Another, Black mm-hmm. Coffee in Bed, uh, Muscles from a Shell. Anyway, if anyone doesn't know Squeeze, pause this podcast right now, go listen to Squeeze's Greatest Hits, and then come back. Yeah, and, yeah. Or, or or just write it down and, and, and yeah. go check it out. I, I would second that notion, but do come back, because we've got more yeah, stuff we've to got more to talk and play here. But um, anyway, Chris Difford at that time was doing these pretty regular co-writing retreats. You'd go off to some faraway place in Italy or England or Wales and be stuck in a house with, you know, 15 songwriters and Chris would just pair you up in the morning. Good morning, let's have some coffee. Okay, uh, Joe and Adam, you go write a song and, uh, you know, who else? And I'd Mick never... and Keith, don't come back <laughs> until <laughs> sundown. Yeah. Go to the bar. Yeah. I don't want to see you. You're, you're disrupting everyone else here. And that was really great for me because at that time, I only knew how to write what I could write, you know, and to be in a room with different writers every day and have to not come out until you had a song taught me there's so many different ways to write, you know, so that was a really helpful period for me around 2005, six, seven, I I was going to Chris's retreats every year and always coming back with a batch of songs. And I think they were different kinds of songs because I was co-writing with different kinds of people. So for example, I wrote a song, uh, on one of these retreats with Linda Thompson, um, that's a different kind of song than, oh, Got My Joy. Uh, it was written on a retreat. Um, Which is our web-exclusive song, by the way. Oh, People cool. should drop by and check that out as well. Great. So suffice it to say, I learned a lot about writing by writing with other people. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's the one like great uncharted country for me, because mm. I'm kind of hung up. Part of as a writer right now, part of my problem is is the internet in general. Yeah, having it all in my pocket. Yeah, this is the first time I've tried to finish an album when I had a smartphone, and I'm distracted everywhere at mm. all times. Yeah, and I'm fairly good about turning it off, but its siren call is so strong, and I use it for work. I do a lot of different things for work, and I kind of have to be connected. Sure. So I'm having a really hard time with that, and I really want to try this co-writing thing because having another soul there mm. will because of my personality and the way I was taught to be by my parents. God bless them. They're amazing people. If there's another person there, this is someone else's time. This is someone else's life. And I have a responsibility to them now, you know? So I need, I need some, some co-writers is what I need right now. You know, more than anything. I can't recommend it any more highly. I mean, it's funny to say that because at the moment I'm not doing a ton of it, but so much of my growth from the first song that I wrote in the morning with which I wrote for Nora probably around 2003 I wrote that till now um, a huge part of my writerly uh, I'm trying not to say journey but it has been a journey <laughs> you has, are from California I am man. from Just California uh, has been through 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 co-writing so another thing uh, that's been really helpful for me uh, over my years of writing has been just to have deadlines to set regular deadlines whether it's a weekly thing or 
um, you know, more frequent or less frequent. And um, for a little while, I got into going to this thing on Monday nights that was hosted by a guy named Jack Hardy. I don't know if people will know who he was, but uh, he passed away. Uh, just as background, he started this this thing called the Fast Folk Movement that um, was going on in New York for a while. Suzanne Vega came out of that scene. He did a thing every Monday in his tiny little one-bedroom, like tiniest one-bedroom apartment you could imagine. Um, in New York, that's pretty In New small. York, yeah. Bathroom down the hall, you know, common bathroom for everyone on the floor. It was like um, a flop house. Yeah, kind of. Um, and you weren't allowed to bring your guitar because if 10 people showed up with guitars, his apartment would be a fire hazard. There's nowhere to put the cases, much less the guitars. Yeah. So you had to play his guitar, which is a great old D18. And no weird tunings. He's, he was like, no, missionary tuning. That's it. E-A-D-G-B-E. And you had to bring in a song every week. No repeats. You couldn't bring in like, oh, here's this song I wrote five years ago for this girl. It was like, no. I, I, he wanted new material every single freaking week or don't come. Um, and he'd cook a little vegetarian pasta meal for everyone, and you could bring a bottle of wine, and you could put a couple bucks in the hat to help pay for whatever. And writing week after week after week and seeing other people do it, um, that was a, another thing that was tremendous for me. And 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 then I started to kind of try and do my own version of that through the internet with friends where I'd, I we couldn't gather together, but we would send songs back and forth and set dead, deadlines. I would say co-writing... And deadlines are the things that have sparked my creativity much more than, you know, reading a good book or having some kind of epiphany. Um, deadlines and also looking, being in a room with somebody where it's like, but we need to write this yeah. song. It's like very Nashvillian. Nashvillian, yes. Is the way to do it. Yeah. And I feel it's... It's a way I, I like to trick myself. Mm. Like if I, I have to be very organized, I have varied habits. You know, I'm into making craft beer and I'm yeah. into mountain climbing and I'm into recording. I'm into making radio, I'm into writing, I'm into songwriting, I'm into cooking. Yeah. And all these things have a lot of gear yeah. in my world. So with a lot of gear and a lot of different things, it's kind of, I call myself a farm league Renaissance man. Huh. Like having all these different pursuits, I have to have a lot of stuff compartmentalized and I have to almost where, if I were looking for this, where would I look for it right. and trick myself and put it there? Yeah. And songwriting is kind of the same way. I have to trick myself into doing this and I have to like take, take my, tell my girlfriend, take my phone away from me. You go to the coffee shop, take it away. Matter of fact, take my laptop, yeah. unplug the modem, take the modem, take the modem, Ooh. get, just give me, I love her, but go take all yeah. this stuff. Cause I'm sure. so distracted. I was, I was working an audio, audio gig years ago where they, at a college, I went to mix some festival for a yeah. week and they put me up in an apartment. But there was nothing in the apartment. There was a fridge and a table and a chair and a bed. Yeah. No TV, no power strip, no nothing. And I wrote like eight songs in a week. Yep. It was great. Yep. You know? Um, yeah. Anyway, let's shift gears just a little bit. Okay. We, we've, got, we've been talking for so long. I, if we had a beer, we could talk all night. I want to do some lighthearted stuff and then okay. get you on out of here. I'm sure you've got a life to live. Um, let's talk about just jazz in general yeah. for just a second. Because sure. one thing I love about you is that you make jazz less stuffy. Hmm. And maybe because growing up, in the era that I did, jazz was a, jazz was a very stuffy thing. I didn't yeah. figure out what was cool about it until much later. Yeah. Um, was that something that came naturally to you, or in a, like, or was jazz just always a not stuffy thing for you? It was, because um, it seemed it seemed kind of clinical. Like I didn't yeah. figure out the like what really meant when Coltrane would play those solos. Or right. Just I was forced to learn two five one and I was forced to learn this solo and I was forced to do these things and right. I wasn't mature enough to appreciate it at that point at that point in my life. 
I think I was pretty lucky when I was in high school in the early 80s, which is kind of a funny time to play guitar because it's like, you know, shred at How that time. Berkeley? Okay. Warring factions of jazz heads and metal heads. Yeah. And I was neither. I was stuck in the middle somewhere. Right. So if you played guitar in the 80s as I did, yeah, you either were a shredding metal rock guitar player or a f- shredding jazz rock fusion guitar player. That, right. Those seem to be those the, your, options. your options. And neither of those appealed to me at all. Yeah. Um, uh, I actually had signed up to go to Musicians Institute, GIT it was called at the time, and saw that those were my options and at the last minute decided not to go. Yeah. Um, I think it's one of the reasons I left Berkeley College of Music. Because every day it was the same argument yeah. at the table in the in the cafeteria. We're eating our crappy cheeseburgers. Jazz sucks. No rock sucks. No jazz sucks. Yeah. And I was like, I kind of felt like the best thing I could come up with was that I, I wanted to be a Joe Walsh guitar player. Yeah. Facile. Yeah. The, the ability to be a little bit of a showman, but legit. And knowing of guitar tone, how to arrange guitar parts. Different guitars and pickups and amps. Now and I want to kiss you on the mouth because <laughs> Joe Walsh, yeah, one Joe, of my favorites to this very day. He's the man. One of the most fun side benefits of playing with this uh, billionaire. I don't know if Jim Dolan's really a billionaire. I just call Close him a billionaire enough. because that's you know by our standards he might as well be. he might as well be. Um, he he's buddies with Joe Walsh, so we got to open some shows for Joe, and then Joe came up on stage once, and I got to wow. jam. Joe Walsh was like. You know, I could reach out and put my arm on his shoulder. I could barely play because I'd just be staring at him the whole time. Like like those young kids watching Jordan play. Yeah. Like the first time he come out to play with them, then nobody plays the game because they just stand there right. staring at him. Well, that's yeah. Except Joe really put you put me at ease because he's a very you know casual he's an guy. guy. Yeah, he's really funny. He plays with these little uh, red nylon guitar picks that look kind of like other nylon guitar picks that like you might the jazz see. Sharp ones Not the, the jazz ones, more kind of like um, the Dunlop. They make them in gray and black. Yeah, 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 you know? yeah with a little the textured Right, a little thing. text. So he plays with a very thin one of those that says, in ti- it's embossed in a very tiny script. It says, brain. I have no idea why or what, but I thought that was really funny because um, I asked him for a guitar pick, of oh, course, because I had Joe to. Walsh guitar pick. I had to have a Joe Walsh guitar pick. Um, but about jazz and stuffiness, um, a couple things really shaped me uh, in that regard in a good way. One is my stepdad, not a musician, but very enthusiastic about jazz. He would listen to Benny Goodman records at home, like Benny Goodman live at Carnegie Hall. So loud, like louder than any of my high school rock friends who were like listening to Zeppelin and whatever. However loud they listened to their Zeppelin, he was listening to Benny Goodman louder. Wow. So I got the impression like, wow, this music has some energy. When you hear Louis Belson playing the drums and it's like got that kind of energy. I've had front of house mixed Louis Belson at one point. Wow. So, you know, that and and so I'm hearing like Gene Krupa and Louis Belson and... um, and, you know, also my stepdad was really into this band called the Crusaders, which was mm-hmm. kind of like this soul jazz group uh, with Larry Carlton on guitar. And again, loud. So I never had the impression in my earliest ex- exposure to jazz that it was supposed to be this kind of effete, you know, yeah, experience. Not at all. Because my stepdad 
that's not where he was coming at it from. It was like he wanted to feel the beat. Yeah. People don't think about it this way, but now that I'm older and more mature as a musician and as a human, like uh, those big bands were the Van Halen of the age. Totally. You know, totally. Larger than life characters, yep. a lot of sound coming off of that stage, yep. you yep. know, and guys living the life. Totally. The music life. Oh. You know? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a kind of a famous story. I'll say it's about the Glenn Miller band. It could be about, you know, name your band. Basie or anybody. Yeah. Uh, they're on tour. Their bus breaks down. You know, they're five miles from the club, so they get off the bus, and it's snowing outside, and they're carrying their instruments. And as they're walking, they pass this, you know, sort of idyllic house a little off the road in the woods, and they look through the window, and it's your mom and dad and two kids, and they're eating this beautiful dinner together, and there's everybody's happy. And, um, you know, one of the jazz musicians looks at the other one and goes, man, how do people live like that? <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. So anyway, long story short, that's how I... So I've never really thought of jazz that way, and I've had many other experiences that shaped my jazz yeah. feeling, but, but really... Um, I, it has to feel good. It has to swing. It has to have an element of um, of uh, heart, no. soul, feeling, yeah. emotion. Yeah, I want mm-hmm. it to be inclusive, not exclusive. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I'll tell you the one thing that turned me off of jazz. Even now, at my advanced age, I'm just finally being able to accept jazz guitar players because it's the tone. Hmm. This is a very, very inside baseball thing about guitar. But a lot of guitar players that I grew up with had what I called the wet noodle tone, hmm. which had no drive at all. You know, I don't know if it's a JC120 rolling amp or you know, chorusy washed out sound. Polytone no amps. No sustain, yeah. polytone amps, you know, yeah. uh, play more like a horn player. Yeah. Leave the chords like, and that turned me, like, as a guy who loves guitar tone, hmm. like, uh, like who do you like? Like Christmas loves a tree. You know, yeah. I, I love guitar tone. It's like a religion for me. Sure. That amp tone where you get it to break up just a little bit, but then you roll off yeah. the volume and it does the capacitance thing where it cleans up. And I just I've always loved that. And I just now figured out that I can listen to jazz guitar players in my life. And I learned one other thing, Adam. I only listen to jazz after dark. Yeah. That's Isn't good. That weird. No, that's good. That's what it's for. Okay, good. Yeah. So I'm not insane. No, uh, if you don't know it, I would highly recommend this record called Ahmad Jamal uh, Live at the Pershing. There's no guitar on it, but he's a piano player, great drummer, Vernel Fournier. Okay. Um, it's pretty engaging. Yeah, I'll, I'll just say quickly about guitar tone. I, I hear you. Uh, it was pretty disconnect. When I was listening to some jazz records in high school, because I would then go out, I'll buy a George Benson record, because you'd read about I'd read guitar magazines, and they'd be like, oh, George Benson's great, yeah. I'll check him out. Joe Pass, never heard of him, I'll go check him out. I was, you know, digging yeah. through the bins. The sponge phase. Yeah. And then I heard this guy, John Schofield, and he his tone was nasty. I think, yeah. I don't know how he got that sound, but it was the first time there was any real connection between, like, you know, the guitar tone on I Want You, She's So Heavy, that kind of, like, crazy ripping guitar tone and then jazz because to me I, I never was that interested in like getting the jimmy page electric guitar sound yeah but i like these kind of nasty like you know helter skelter tone or um revolution not revolution nine but revolution i'm talking about uh stuff from the white album those kind of like crazy guitar tones really appealed to me and john's audacious tone audacious yeah yeah and John Schofield was the first guitar player that I heard in jazz who was like 
coming from that place. Yeah. Well, they they weren't so stuffy as to feel like they had to have the polytone amp tone or the JC120 no. tone or whatever it was right. that was whatever it was that the jazz players because I would go take lessons and I, you know I'd get frowned upon for wanting you know it's not like again I didn't want the Jimmy Page tone either I just wanted something other than what that was because yeah. I, I for something it was visceral it turned me off how their guitar sound sounded yeah disconnected me from everything else and I didn't want to hear it I couldn't listen to it yeah you know and then it just you know tips you know hat tip to you that's something you do very well the small amp a little bit of breakup not yeah. a lot of pedals but you still do your own thing with your own character and you've got a little bit of that mixed in so yeah. you know kudos to you for having big ears again i'm running out of time but talk to me about teaching okay because this is something that's i've had so many guitar players i've taught lessons myself through the years how did you, were you always a teacher once you became an accomplished guitar player? Was that just a way to make income, a thing that you loved? Was it an avocation? Because uh, you're a teacher now. Yeah. What's the name of the school where you teach? It's called the Los Angeles College of Music. Okay. Uh, it's in Pasadena. Uh, yeah, I'm the head of the guitar department there. Um, uh, I, yeah, I always have taught. I, I remember when I was a kid on the guitar, as soon as I knew something, I wanted to share it with other people. I didn't really think of it at the time as a, as a moneymaker, but it became apparent pretty quickly that that was something that you could do. Um, and so that's always been an element of my work. Even when I was, I mentioned earlier that I worked at Guitar Player Magazine for a while, a lot of what I did there had to do with writing lessons. You know, it wasn't so much like reviewing the new right, Marshall right, right. amp or something. I do some artist features, but mostly lessons. Even if it was, it could have been something I was writing or I got, they, the magazine at one point sent me to take a lesson with Andy Summers from oh, cool. the police. And then I would write that up like, you are there taking a lesson, you know. And I did a few of those. I've always loved it. Um, I had some great teachers, so I kind of feel like that's something that yeah. I want to pass along. Because the great thing in this question, like the one question that keeps bubbling up over and over again once I knew I was going to have you in for this, is what do you learn from the students? Mm. Like it's pretty good. I can imagine what they would learn from you. The rudimentary stuff, yeah. practice, yeah. show up. Yeah. Uh, here's your jury. You should learn this solo. You, blah, 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 blah. you know, right. we've all taken guitar lessons or right? instrument, instrument lessons on whatever. Yeah. What do you learn from them? Mm. Boy. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've come home from school and said to my my girlfriend, oh, you'll never guess what happened. I learned, you know, because I have those moments all the time. It, right now, uh, I'm having, a, I, I can't, I'm trying to think of one thing. Um, well, first of all, I hear names from them that, of artists that I don't know. So they mention people that, that I then go, and check out. So that's one thing is that I feel slightly less stuck in the mud of the music of my, you know, youth. And actually I do wind up checking out people that they're excited about. Um, I think also now, uh, they're just very, ex it's more just the general excitement. When I see, you know, these kids who are just can't wait in the morning to take the guitar out of the case and pick it up and start playing it. Um, that's cool. And interestingly, though, you know, you and I mentioned like during the 80s, Shred was so big and then it kind of went away. And now it's kind of cool again. There's this guy, Guthrie Govan, I don't know, or Govan, I think it's pronounced, who's a tr 
technically probably the best guitar player on the planet. And he makes really cool music that's sort of jazz rock fusion. And it's interesting to see suddenly now, and, and then, you know, this like acoustic tapping, playing the acoustic guitar as this like kind of like what Michael Hedges was doing in mm-hmm. the 80s. But it's interesting to see that it's kind of coming back again and to see kids actually working hard to the get... The virtuosic thing. Yeah, but in I think in a kind of new way. In the 80s, the virtuosity um, seemed kind of boneheaded. Even gratuitous. It was gratuitous. Masturbatory even. Yeah. Ingve Malmsteen, like the whole thing, like how, you know, all the guitars had scalloped fretboards at that point where right. they, they route out between the frets. To what end, I don't entirely, un- I still don't I still entirely don't understand. know that. And I shouldn't, you know, I'm the head of the guitar department at a music college. I should know why scalloped frets do something. I have no idea. Really, I have no idea. Um it always seemed kind of, yeah, cartoonish to me. It was like, you know, like these giant bodybuilders, you know, like why... Women don't really want to date a gigantic bodybuilder. You know, it's just something that guys do that they that is cool. I don't know. No offense to bodybuilders, but shredding always seemed the same to me. Like nobody really wants that guy in their band. So I never strove yeah. to be that guy. I wanted to be the guy that you'd actually want to hire to play in your band. Um, but now it seems like there's this kind of virtuosity that's a little bit more refined. Guthrie Govan is is playing some really cool music. People are doing cool stuff on the acoustic guitar. St. Vincent. She's great. Is an example of this. She's a Ber- she went to Berkeley. Right. And she does a style which it, it's not evident on the surface, I think, how how uh, facile her guitar parts are. That's not the proper word. I'm sure every guitar part can be facile, but how facile she is at playing these guitar yeah. parts, arranging these guitar parts, yeah. and they're angular yeah. and they're uh, peculiar. But it, and she's not doing it because she doesn't know any better. She's doing it because she knows the rules right. and knows when to bend or break them. Yeah. And that's that's her unique genius, I think. Yeah. Annie and Clark, I think. Is Annie Clark is her, her name. Yeah. People, if you don't know St. Vincent, just start anywhere. Go, go, go check out her music. You can't go wrong. So these kids, because they're in school and it's the nature of of being young and being in school they're trying to break you know they want to know where the rules are just so that they can push past them. right just right, like right. you know if you tell your kids like okay we're going to bed at 10 o'clock and no tv like here's then they're gonna find the loopholes and the the air leaks and like so it's fun to see these kids take the rules because i try not to take the rules of music too seriously but I fall into that as we all do, um, and as teachers, because you, you know you need to know what notes are in such and such scale. And these kids are always looking for like a workaround or a bend or a, a loophole, and I, I find that really cool. It reminds me that you know all this stuff is not so sacred. Living and breathing. Yeah. And they're doing what every person, every generation has always done, which is making it their own. Yep. Whatever it is. Yeah. Finding a way to have their own identity and their own stamp on it. It's 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 our I feel like it's our job as humans. You know, people get mad at their kids when they act out, and of course I understand why. But it's their job to self actualize. Yeah. It's their job to become a self sustaining, sentient being. And it's that's their imperative. And it's the same with musicians. We're going to do what we're going to do. You know, we need teachers. We need to be guided. We need to be, have a, you know, show me the way, you know, where is the minefield? And maybe I want to go to the minefield, but where is it? You know, anyways, I'm kind of bending that metaphor. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, just a couple more questions because I really sure. got to get out of here too. Sure. Um, one thing you're doing with teaching that I find so very fascinating, which is kind of something that technology has really enabled our ability to do this. Um, you don't have to be in the same room as your student anymore. So talk to me about how you're using technology to teach kids these days, or yeah. grown-ups, anybody. Yeah. Um, so, well, one thing I'm doing is um, 
I started this YouTube channel, which is called Guitar Tips, and it's just a weekly thing that I post on Fridays, and it's usually, could be anywhere from 5 to 15 minutes long, and it's not really a guitar lesson. It's not like, hey, here's how to play this song that everybody What's wants What's the to. URL so people can go? Oh, boy. I haven't actually created a, a catchy URL, but if you go into YouTube okay. and you type my name, Adam Levy. L-E-V-Y. L-E-V-Y, and then Guitar Tips, T-I-P-S, Adam Levy, Guitar Tips. Um, I need to I need to fix the URL so it's easier to uh, for people to find it. But that's what it is. So it's not like a lesson per se. It's not, hey, here's the way to play that song that everybody wants to learn. It's more just some inspiration, whether you've been playing two years or 20 years or whatever. It's just a little bit of juice if you're, uh, if you're feeling dry. And I've checked them out. It, it's a more of a, it's kind of a, a, a more immediate or personal version of the things that you, you find in guitar magazines. Right. Where every week they'll be, you know, towards the back, you know, like 80% of the way through before all the ads yeah. for a stainless steel pick or whatever. There will be uh, <laughs> like a little lesson, you know, and you used to write those kinds yeah, of things. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, here's a way to do uh, whole tone scales, you know, yeah. et cetera. So, yeah. And, and it's a great service. It's a great thing. I Actually, it's funny. As a side note, I have it. I've looked at this, okay. and I've got it up on one of my numerous tabs of uh-huh. my like my radio day job. So every day when I go in and boot up my computer, my browser pops up, and you start playing. <laughs> but every week it's like a di- or every day it's a different thing because it just keeps cycling through all right. these videos. So there's a lot of them. I really encourage people to check it out. What's the so what's the best way to find it? One more time. Um, go to YouTube, and then in your search window, type my name Adam Levy L E V Y, and then the words guitar tips. Guitar T-I- tips. Yeah. Okay, T-I-P-S. kids, check that out. You'll make you a better player, which is our goal here, right? Right. Okay. Tell me this. Okay. Um, listening to this type of music that you make, uh-huh. what's what your record collection? Hmm. You know, do you have an extensive record collection that's kind of all over the place? I do. Um, I do. Uh, maybe make it easier for you. Okay. Uh, what artists, or maybe one or two okay. that are in there that people might be very surprised that would be in Adam Levy's record collection. Oh, okay. I mean, do you have Sepultura in there? Do you <laughs> have some uh, Gregorian chant music? I mean, that's not that out. I mean, I'm into all kinds of different sure. things for different reasons, too. But sure. like, you know, people know you as being this guy who played with Nora Jones, Tracy Chapman, you yeah. teach guitar, which seems yeah. like a very buttoned-up kind of thing to do yeah. for a job, even though it's guitar. Yeah. You're teaching it at a school. Yeah. Uh, what's in there? Oh, well, um, I might be surprised what's not in there more than what is in there. Um, not as much guitar music as you might imagine. Um, I tend to want to listen not so much to other guitar players as to, I love listening to music, but I listen more to almost anything but guitar players. So, um, I'm really, I mentioned this a minute ago. There's a piano player named Ahmad Jamal, who my favorite record of his is from 58. It's called Live at the Pershing, which was a nightclub, I guess. And, um, or a taco stand. We don't, we, we, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> I, I um, kid, I kid. I really, I'm really into piano trios, which is generally piano, bass, and drums. You're I, a monk guy? Yes. I'm a monk guy. Yep. I had a big monk phase a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I made a Monk record last year that's only on the internet, so that's why maybe people don't know about it, but it's on... AdamLevy.com? No, it's on... If you go to Bandcamp, Bandcamp is a website that hosts Mm -hmm. music for artists, and it's listed under the the clarinet player's name. His name is Ben 
Goldberg. So okay. if you if you just search Bandcamp for Ben Goldberg, you'll find it. We did a record called Worry Later, Worry Later, which is the subtitle of a Monk tune called San Francisco Holiday. Um, I love Monk. Uh, almost you name it, the Bill Evans trio. I would say I would you know Duke Ellington made a piano trio record in the '60s called Piano Reflections on Capitol Records. That's a really great underrated record. Um, that's the stuff I can't get up. There's something magic about the power of three people. And it just turns out in jazz that for me, the three things I want to hear are upright bass, yeah. piano, and drums. The Oscar Peterson trio, dozens of great I think it's because uh, it's a small enough ensemble that they can each have their own identity that you can follow. Right. You know, it's not like a big band, which I love for a different reason. Right. But you're you're losing individual players within the part within the sections and that's on purpose. Right. But you're giving up something to get something else. And right. in a trio, you can hear the identity of yeah. each player and what they're doing and all Exactly. Time. This exactly. is very pedestrian, but one of my favorite records, again, no BS, is actually the Charlie Brown Christmas record. Of course. I love the Vince Garaldi trio. I, I love f- the way he plays. Yeah. I, or played, I should say. Yeah. Anyway, I forgot about I forget about that record except, you know, once a year I remember that record. But that I listened to death to that record and yeah. other Vince Guaraldi records because of it. Yeah. So that's the stuff I'm not I wish I could sound cool and be like, "Oh, where there's this like Ethiopian harp player that nobody's ever heard of that I'm really into." But I don't that's not really what my record collection is. Okay. All right, one last, two more questions and I promise okay. we're done. Yeah. It was a nice dodge before. It was very, very well done. What's the craziest thing in there? Like, there's got to be one crazy record, or, or maybe a guilty pleasure record. You really liked uh, Rock Set, or you really liked, uh, I don't know. Like, there's got to be like one crazy record that you dig, you put on. Maybe it's nostalgic, reminds you yeah. from when you were a kid that you put on. You're like, if someone saw that in your collection, they'd be like, what is that doing in your collection? Oh, wow. Um, well,. A guilty pleasure. You know, a, a, a guilty pleasure for me is, it's not that weird. It's not cheesy exactly, but I say this and a lot of people kind of look at me like, what? Um, oh, boy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name two actually. One is Cat Stevens' Teaser and the Fire Cat. Now that I'm a songwriter, people might go, okay, that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Cat Stevens was a guy with an acoustic guitar and some facial hair. He's a folky. But that record is, I would say, one of my 50 favorite records of all time in any genre of anything. That's a great record. Teaser and the Fire Cat, great songs, great production, everything, great artwork, everything about that record is great. And then I will say that even though I... um. I never really got too much into shredding. Or there was a period just because growing up in LA, you know, you want to go with the flow. So everybody's into like, you know, Larry Carlton and this kind of jazzy fusiony stuff. There was a band called The Fence, F E N T S. They were around for a few years. Um, they would play places like the Country Club in Reseda or Hop Sings, places that don't exist anymore. But when fuse jazz fusion was a thing. And I bought their record when I was a kid. You know, I bought it at Bebop Records in Reseda. Um, and I put it on the other day, and it sounded so good. I can't imagine anyone would enjoy it as much as I enjoyed it. Because yeah. it brought back yeah, yeah. the joy of a certain time. But it's a guilty... And my girlfriend kind of humors me. You know, like, she'll put up with a Jeff Beck record here and there, but... 
that was pretty even my cat was like no like the cat went outside <laughs> yeah if you're pissing off the cat he does not like fusion yeah well, i don't like fusion either yeah. i gotta i gotta come clean i don't like fusion okay no smooth jazz and no fusion those are yeah. my those are my those are my things but i will say just about like like rock i never liked rock set just because it wasn't quite the right time but i really do love pop music like phil collins face value phil collins no jacket required i list i would listen to early phil collins records all day long like and not ironically like that yeah. stuff sounds really good to what me what i love about phyllis he, even himself he's like I, I have no idea why i'm as popular as i am i'm a paunchy balding middle-aged british guy right who plays pop music which not, none of that really makes sense but and people seem to love it and there it is what are you gonna do man you get on the train yeah you know the train shows up sometimes that's the train that's coming you got to get on it's mm. a, another metaphor for like okay final question okay i'm ready Adam Levy. you ready i'm ready it's a very very open-ended question this i'm trying to make this kind of like my new favorite question for everybody uh what makes you happy Hmm. Very pregnant pause. Yeah. What makes me happy is going for a walk and getting lost and then coming back home. Good. I like it. And that's short and sweet, too, which I like, because you can put that in a song. All right, Adam, one more song. What's this going to be? Then we'll get on out of here. Um, Rich, get your uh, mandolin tuned up and ready to go. What's this last song going to be? This uh, let's play let's play three days. This is a song that we play sometimes with our quartet when we play at Sassafras. Uh, we're gonna go do see a- those shows, everyone. <laughs> Tuesday nights, just about every other week. Uh, next one coming up is on the tenth uh, of uh, November. Right, tenth of November at Sassafras. Also, first of November at the York oh, and right. Highland so York, Park. The same. That's band the same band. Okay, yeah. Okay. So uh, Rich and I uh, sometimes do little acoustic. Uh, shows and that's so this is a taste of of that this is three days uh which is a willie nelson song all right fantastic one last time adam levy on independence day thanks joe
last time on Independence Day, Adam Levy, accompanied by Rich Hinman. Gentlemen, thank you so very much. That was fantastic. Oh, thanks, Joe. Another thank great you. song. Such great music, you guys. It, it really shows that you guys have been playing together for so long because obviously you're both accomplished musicians, but that relationship thing that we talked about early on is very, very evident in what you do. And, uh, and thank you for like opening your hearts to the audience and to the listeners and sharing that stuff. It's really, really great stuff. Sure. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit about, we got to get, got to get rolling here. We've been had such a great conversation, talked about so many different wonderful things. Uh, but, uh, you've got this regular band, which is the Rich Hinman versus Adam Levy. I imagine you guys are like Godzilla versus King Kong when you say it's, that. Like. It's funny. I, I think, I think Adam is less, com- I'm just going to say this. I think Adam is less comfortable with the name than yeah. I am yeah. because he's one of the least combative people I've ever met. Yeah. I, is that fair to say? You can, you can say that's not true if you... Yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> the way you say, yeah, that's it's, true. He's a little sheepish about it. It's so gentle. It. It's the adversarial I, aspect it's, of the two. The, the and maybe tr- that's... But it makes it funnier, though. Anyone who knows you would know that it goes against type and therefore is funnier. I, I think it's so. I think it's funny for that reason. And, yeah. I, and I also think it's not... It's it's so clearly when you see the band, it's yeah. all it's all love. Well, yeah, it's you guys are adversary. all love, and the music. And the, I encourage everyone to go see you guys play these shows at Sassafras. I've caught a couple of them, and it's just it's it's the best kind of show that you can see in L.A. because you're just set up in the corner of the bar. You've got tiny little amplifiers. Jay's got a tiny little drum set. Yeah. Jennifer's got a tiny little bass amp. Yeah. There's no PA system. Nobody's singing, shrieking, yelling, mm. louding. There's no attitude being thrown around. Mm. Um, between songs when you announce songs, Adam, you just kind of talk a little louder. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's it. what it is. It just uh, speaks up. Yeah. And it's a combination. Tell us about the repertoire for these shows. It's like it's pulled from a whole bunch of different things. Yeah. How would you describe it, Rich? Well, okay. This is, we we got into, so there's some like Booker T and the MGs type things. Right. There's some. All instrumental, by the way. Yeah, all, all instrumental. instrumental. Yeah. So there's like some groovy Memphis soul stuff. Some. Um, and there's some uh, more traditional country stuff. Yeah. And and we're playing a lot of these, you know, most of these are songs that, well, not most. Um, a lot of these are songs that originally have vocals. So we're right. playing yeah. we're playing the melodies. Yeah, you know, yeah, we're yeah. treating them basically as like jazz tunes, just yeah. formally in that you play, you know, you play the melody and people take solos. Um, yeah. It doesn't sound like jazz at all, really, no. most of the it time. It makes me feel like you're playing a real book that encompasses all great songs ever. Yeah. That's and, the vibe. That's and a, not that's... just, you know, everybody knows in the music business knows what a real book is. It's a, the people who don't know, it's this big, giant, thick, actual paper book, which was an underground book, because a lot of those songs were copy, all copyrighted. Right. So you'd have to buy it on the sly, but it had just chord charts and a melody for several hundred jazz standards yep. yeah pretty that's much right. so, so you'd like that's like the world's real book is what you're playing that's exactly we play songs i would say most people would be familiar with most of the tunes we play um even today here we played a song called three days which is a willie nelson song um we played uh well i don't know if everyone would know this but we played a song called between the bars which is by elliot smith a, a late great singer songwriter we do songs that people who like music will be familiar with yeah but it's not it's not meant to be too like insidery or clicky it's it's yeah. very um you know egalitarian you to, yeah, and you should be able to enjoy them if you don't know the songs i exactly. don't think of it as this like nod to like hey every like this yeah. wink kind of like hey we're actually playing this song it's not like a joke it's just well, that right, they're like yeah. they're these are this is the way we kind of communicate and yeah. these are the songs that seem to 
work. And, I and would call that you're unironically playing these songs. Yeah, yeah and exactly. we live in a we live in a hipster kind of dominated world in arts and culture where like everything has to be tongue in cheek or kitschy or campy. Yeah, no, or, it's not. And it's, it's it's but it's but it's it's earnest in a genuine way that's not lame, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and I hope. I mean, sometimes when I talk about this uh, gig or this band, you know, it sounds serious because because like you say, we're in earnest, but it's really fun. Like yeah. how people, you know, when we talk about it people don't miss the point that it's it's really fun yeah yeah and that's that's what i would i mean we gotta wrap things up but they're playing these shows uh you've got other shows coming up too let's just mention those real quick okay. uh in oak park california this is adam this is you just playing solo uh i'm sharing the bill with a, a songwriter friend of mine named melissa greener so we're gonna okay. do separate sets okay fantastic that's in oak park california russ and julie's house concerts tickets are 20 dollars for that but yep. it is open to the public yep. you can drop by adamlevy.com l-e-v-y to learn information find tickets that kind of thing that's on saturday the 24th which is coming up soon and then day of the dead the day after halloween sunday morning or sunday evening uh, you're playing at the York, right? Which is in technically Glassell Park, Highland Park. I think that's Highland Park. Highland Park. Park. Yeah, Highland Park. The great thing. I didn't even know they did music there. So you'll see me there. Uh, buy that beer that I owe you. Also <laughs> back at Sassafras, you get a bunch of dates coming up. All Tuesday nights. You've got the 10th of November. You've got the 24th of November. Right around Hall. Excuse me. Thanksgiving time. Mm-hmm. Two dates in uh, December on the 1st and the 15th. Plus a show in San Francisco at the Contemporary Jewish Museum on the 19th of November as well. Right. So busy schedule, and you're always adding dates. I'm assuming. Correct? Always, yeah. So Adam, Rich, thank you guys so much. I'm beside myself with joy that you guys could take time out of your busy musician schedule and kind of talk about these things. It's great stuff to share, so thank you. Thank you, Joe. It's been a pleasure. It's been my pleasure. So thank you to Adam Levy and his accompanist, Rich Hinman, also to the Independence Day staff, Valentino Rivera, Dale Tanksley, Wayne Topinski, and Sally Shackleton. The groovy Tony Tone Loke Piscotti manages the Independence Day website. Independence Day's theme music was composed by Great Lakes Myth Society. Be sure to check them out. For Independence Day, as always, I am Joe Armstrong. If you do anything today, please be good to one another.